Welcome. Welcome, everyone. Welcome, friends. Welcome to our listeners. Welcome to our viewers on YouTube later on and uh, our listeners at an- on Anchor Podcast and now on Apple Podcast. Welcome to a new episode of the One Podcast. Uh, unfortunately, today, once again, our, our friend Ali Mahmoud is not able to join me because there are internet issues in Aden and uh, he's chasing some stories. He's behind schedule on his own personal work in Aden, writing some good stories, following up. And, and so today, I, we, we, we have our, our good friend, Ashraq uh, Abdelghani from Malaysia, uh, that is joining us, joining me today. Welcome, Ashraq. Thank you. How are you? Thank good you. evening. Hi, good evening there. It's late, late at night in, in Malaysia today. Thank you, oh, for, yeah. thank you for your time. Thank you for sticking around. Uh, we're going to have a great episode today. This episode bringing together uh, some excellent women activists. Uh, we have four Yemeni women joining us from Virginia, the US, all the way to Estrak in Malaysia. And we, I've been wanting to do this episode for a very long time. This was supposed to be our fourth episode uh, when Ali and I uh, joined forces to, to, for this project. We said that our fourth episode would be a panel with Yemeni women to discuss, Yemeni issues to discuss, bring out their perspective, their experiences. But as you, everyone can see, we're now in the eighth episode and events and the news have taken over this podcast where we've been wanting to keep up with the news, keep up with the UN panel, keep up with the new Biden administration, keep up with all of these things that are going on in Yemen. And But finally, um, I said, we need to stop. We need to get back on track. And I started reaching out to some great uh, Yemenis everywhere. Uh, a couple of people that we invited were not able to make it today for one reason or another. We are going to miss their experience, their, their their perspectives, but I'm sure that we'll we'll bring them out to to our next episodes where where we continue to invite them. We have an update today live from 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 Madib with our friend Yasmin Al Qadi, who is a great activist uh, in in Madib. She's going to give us a quick update of the situation there, particularly with the IDPs. Uh, we are recording on the 27th of February, so she's, you know, there's the updates of the missile attacks and drone attacks in the city of Adab Friday and today, Saturday. But uh, we usually do a roundup of, of news. But today, uh, my friend uh, Eshrak, I'm going to start with a focus on the latest news, uh, which is this resolution. Um, it's resolution. 2564 from the UN Security Council. It was voted on on the 25th of this month uh, on uh, Thursday. <clears throat> and um, we are I'm gonna, I'm gonna go through it because there's some interesting things that I that I want to bring up uh, and highlight for, for for our friends listening that might not be familiar, might not have not seen it, might not have time to have gone through this resolution. This is a resolution that basically has the UN Security Council renew the mandate of the 2140 uh, sanctions regime, the the 2140 committee, uh, which also 
renews the mandate for the UN panel of experts on Yemen, which we've been discussing uh, for the last three episodes almost. So bear with me today, and uh, I want to highlight some 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 things that we see uh, here. Um, one of the things you you, you know. Um, that some of us are talking about on, on, on social media is that this was definitely a missed opportunity. Uh, you know, this, the, this resolution um, lacked some teeth, in, in my opinion. This resolution was the result of a lot of negotiations for the looks of it. We have an article um, that looked at the role of China and Russia uh, in behind doors in negotiating with the pen holder with the with with the UK on the language and the scope of of the uh, of this resolution it doesn't really bring out anything new it does not expand any mandates uh, it does reinforce a few ideas it does highlight a couple of interesting issues um, but it definitely shows that um, the Security Council cannot, uh, agree on further action on Yemen. And we also saw that, that that visit to Moscow by the SDC perhaps paid off because the SDC is not included at all, is not mentioned uh, in, in this uh, resolution. And we, if we recall our episode that went through the, the UN panel, the SDC was mentioned by the UN panel as being in violation of uh, Resolution 2216. Uh, but we don't see that here explicit. We also, I'll go through it, but it's also interesting when the, the resolution chooses to mention the Houthis and when it excludes any mention uh, uh, of Houthis. So to begin with, uh, we have here, you know, the, the beginning of the of the resolution, a commitment to, to the unity and territorial integrity of Yemen. So this is, again, even though some, some uh, continue to discuss the issue of fragmentation, the be, continue to be pessimistic on, on, on the future of a united, unified Republic of Yemen. Uh, we see that all 15, uh, especially the, the, the P5 uh, members of the Security Council, continue are committed to a unified, a united Yemen. Uh, it does begin by mentioning the escalation in Madhub. Um, again, on my social media, I've mentioned on, on Facebook and on, on, on Twitter, I, I mentioned that, in my opinion, it is very wrong for us, for anyone, especially the Security Council, to talk about escalation in Madhub. This has been a battle that is a year long by, by the Houthis moving from Western Sada down to, to, to Al-Jawf. Uh, toward the capital of Al-Jawa, Al-Hazm, and moving west, uh, east from Naham, Sanaa, into Marib. Then later on, last fall, we saw the Houthis moving from Qaifa, Al-Baida, north into southern uh, Marib, marching toward Murad, uh, Jabal Murad, the, the Murad area. So I, I, I'm going to continue to be a critic of this use of language. It is not an escalation. This is the war. This is, we've been seeing this from the Houthis for a year now. And I, I will be a critic that why are people so urgent, you, you, you know, raising, uh, you know, these alarms today? Where have they been for a year? This is a year long uh, process. And then we also saw that the Houthis 
ha- continue to attack southern uh, Saudi Arabia. You know, there's a lot of talk about how the Houthi, how the Houthis were affected by the FTO listing under the Trump administration before uh, uh, before President Biden took office, and then how they've acted after uh, President Biden suspended that listing. For me, there's been absolutely no change. For people that think that Houthis were scared or were concerned, or that the FDO listing impacted them in any way, I will continue to say it didn't change anything. If we look at the beginning of January, if we look at December 30th until January 19th, the Houthis were attacking southern Saudi Arabia. The the Houthis attacked the Aden airport on the 30th of December. Uh, The Houthis continued to march through 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 Madrid, uh, the clashes continued in Taiz. So this idea that the FDO changed their behavior, in my opinion, is it, it, it's a non-starter. It's it, 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 it's it's not what reality is about. The Houthis were did not behave different when 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 the U.S. sanctioned the five security individuals in December. The Houthis didn't change their behavior when uh, President Trump threatened to list them as a terrorist organization. And they were, their behavior didn't change between January 18 and January 25th. It just didn't. Uh, this is a continued uh, tactics and strategy from the, the Houthis, uh, who are nowhere, in my opinion, close to reaching a ceasefire uh, on the ground, as, as we will discuss with, with our fr- friend Yasmin, who will give us uh, an update from Madam. Uh, next, uh, it goes into, you know, 2020, the failures on the coalition, the failures from the UN the envoy, the failures on the ground to achieve a ceasefire last year when the Houthis were pushing down south from Sada into Al-Hazm um, Al-Jawf. Uh, you know, the coalition continued on, even though there was a ceasefire called by the UN Secure, Secretary General, the, the so-called COVID ceasefire that the, the, the security, uh, the Secretary General wanted a global ceasefire uh, through the pandemic. It never materialized. The, the Saudis called for a unilateral ceasefire. It never materialized. Houthis were highlighting um, airstrikes in Hajja and, and Al-Jaw uh, through March and April. And uh, we we saw that that the Houthis continued to march through Western Al Uh We then get into the issue of highlighting the the continued transfer and smuggling of weapons into Yemen and, and the UN panel. We went through that on, on on how the UN panel highlighted the new weapon systems, the the the, the routes used to smuggle weapons into. In, into uh, Houthi's territory, but also highlighting how Yemen is used also to smuggle weapons into the Horn of Africa, Somalia, for example. Um, again, we see the Safar oil tanker being mentioned. Again, this is something that Ali Mahmoud and I have discussed previously. And, you know, we think back to April, May 2020, when the campaign about the Potential humanitarian, uh, potential environmental disaster. How there's the the the, the suffer tanker is a ticking bomb. How long does it have to tick? I mean, you know, how long are we going to hear activists and politicians and diplomats talking about this tanker and nothing being done? There is no middle ground. You you, you know, I'll repeat again that the the 
the the Houthis are pushing and the the coalition and the government are pushing and the UN and the other diplomats are pushing on the on this issue but no one seems there is no seems the, the the negotiators seem to be truly inept that they cannot negotiate access to this tanker that they cannot negotiate offloading the 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 oil which belongs to a third party already that already paid there are rumors that the Houthis are demanding 80 million dollars in order to begin uh, work on the tanker. I haven't seen anything to that effect, um, to those news confirming that. So this is just a mess. And I don't think we're going to get any progress on this issue anytime soon. And back, you know, during the summer come May, a year after that campaign last year, we're probably most likely going to continue talking about the oil tanker. Um, then we come into the mentioning of the continued dialogue that only dialogue can 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 resolve this conflict, but we just see failure after failure. We just saw that the prisoner talks uh, in Amman failed uh, last this month in February, and again, you know, failure to to reach an agreement, failure to reach a middle ground. Um, we have the mentioning of. Um, the mention of, I think I'm, I lost my video uh, here. So give me a second. There it is. Um, we saw the new sanctions uh, on a Houthi individual by the UN Security Council. So now there's six people uh, sanctioned by the U, by the UN Security Council. Uh, they are also sanctioned by the US. Uh, ind independently, and we see this talk. Of, we're going to get into it later with with our panel, but this talk about the transition process. So we continue to read this from 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 the from the UN Security Council that this is still the transition period. We are still transitioning from November 2011 when Ali Abdullah Saleh, uh, you know, signed to the agreement to step down on the GCC initiative. We are still using the language of transition. President Hadi is still a transitional president. Um, and, and, and this is just interesting that it's be, being used, that this language is being used in the UN Security Council uh, resolution in 2021. We continue to read, this is important for me because it, it continues to highlight that this process remains under the UN auspices, continues to uh, give the lead to the UN's uh, envoy, which is interesting because it comes couple of weeks after the U.S. Uh, named a special envoy to the U Yemen conflict. So it's going to be interesting how this uh, interact in the coming, how the U.N. envoy and the U.S. envoy interact. We saw that they met uh, in, in Riyadh uh, last week. We are recording on the 27th of February. So the, UN, the U.S. envoy, Biden's envoy already visited Saudi Arabia, already spoke with the UN envoy Martin Griffiths, uh, and we already saw Martin Griffin coming, returning from Iran, meeting the government in Iran there. Um, this is something that we're gonna highlight today in our talk with our guests, the participation of women and how important this is and how neglected it's been and, and, and the impact, you know, what it means that the, that the new coalition government of Yemen has no women. What does it mean that the women are not delegates to the peace process? So we're, we're gonna talk about that. Um, again. A little bit of contradiction here in this next paragraph because even though in the previous paragraphs it talks about the transition being in the hands of the UN 
office of the UN envoy, this paragraph talks about the, 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 the support for the Riyadh Agreement, which is an agreement, a peace agreement between the GOY and the SDC outside of the UN peace track. This is a separate um, agreement that was signed under the auspices of the Saudi government. Um, so, you know, it mentions continued UN mediation, but the mediation is being done by Saudi Arabia, not by the UN envoy. So this is some interesting language here. Uh, we see an interesting paragraph, two paragraphs here talking about Al-Qaeda and ISIS. We saw that the UN panel report have very minimal mention of these groups and the impact they're having on the conflict and the role. But yet the UN Council, the UN Security Council is mentioning, mentioning the two uh, groups in a, in a Yemen-related uh, document, uh, which mainly you know, is for the, the UN's monitoring team for AQ and, and, and ISIS. So we, we, this comes also about a week. This comes also about a week um, we saw that there was a document published by the Houthis claiming that AQAP's leader, Batarfi, was appointing a new emir for Madhav to fight, to gather the, the, the AQ militants against the Houthis, still unconfirmed. We also saw a video from AQAP, AQAP's media uh, with Batarfi speaking uh, mentioning COVID. Uh, this video was put out a couple of weeks after the UN monitoring team came out with this report claiming that Batarfi had been arrested in Mahra. So we have that whole back and forth still going and no confirmation from what side, whether he is arrested, detained, or whether he is free and, and, and still uh, operating independently in, in, in Yemen. Uh, we also saw uh, another statement from ISIS being published by Houthi sources claiming that ISIS was going to add it to Madhav to engage the Houthis. And this all comes after both ISIS and AQ were pushed out of Kaifa al-Bayda by the Houthis uh, last year. So this is just some interesting stuff, interesting language. Um, here, the UN Council also reiterates, the again, the sanctions, the continuation of the sanctions regime under 2140 and the continued relevance of 2216, which we've seen over the last two, three weeks, we've seen a lot of commentary on social media. A lot of Yemenis want to address 2216. They want to amend it. They want to expand it, or they want a new resolution. They want a new text. They want a new text um, that supersedes 2216 and reflects the realities on the ground a little bit better, according to them. So it's interesting that this was not dealt with in this resolution whatsoever. Uh, then we go into condemning. This is an interesting part because this paragraph condemns the attack on the Aden port, air, airport on 30 December, but it doesn't mention anybody. It doesn't give responsibility. It doesn't hold anyone responsible for, for that attack, even though the Yemeni government already uh, published its findings from Aden claiming that this was done by the Houthis. And we saw two independent organizations post reports giving the Houthis uh, responsibility for this attack on the 30th December when the GOY coalition government landed in, in Aden. So again, lacking teeth, lacking anything uh, of substance here, uh, the, the, the UN Security Council could not even agree 
to give to uh, you, you know give um, the the Houthis responsibility for that outrageous attack that actually killed people, uh, Yemenis, uh, and could have killed the entire cabinet that day. So very disappointing uh, language there. And then it moves on to the Yemen panel of experts where it renews their mandate. Um, it highlights, uh, oh, also the, 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 the paragraph that, uh, says that the, the UN Security Council will get a case study from the UN panel on the attack of Yemen. Let's keep in mind that one member of the panel of experts visited Aden uh, early February, or I think it was early February. One of them uh, visited uh, Aden and had some pretty good meetings for what I hear. Um, and I'm thinking uh, back to when I served on the UN panel, uh, they're going to produce a case study within the next uh, month because their mandate ends at the end of um, March. So we still don't know who is going to be on the next panel, but this group of five experts right now, they, they it looks like they have, they've been asked to produce a case study on the attack and I don't know if we're going to, I don't know if it's going to be public or not, but more than likely it's going to be a confidential report to the committee. Uh, and we won't see any of that, but that would be interesting to, to, to follow up. Uh, the, then the Security Council continues on the, to highlight the, the transfer of weapons, the, the smuggling. Uh, they highlight continued incidents off the coast of Yemen. And the, the, the smuggling of weapons, which we read on the UN uh, panel of experts report, it also uh, highlights the importance of continued capacity building for the, for, for the Yemeni Coast Guard. This is interesting. This is a, a, different, a difficult issue for a couple of years because both the U.S. and Britain are going back and forth trying to convince the government to allow them to train the, the Coast Guard. So for what I hear still, we have a Coast Guard that's divided between Aden and Mukalla. Uh, and the U.S. train is reaching out to one Coast Guard command and the Brits are reaching out to a different uh, command in, in Mukalla, I believe. So it'd be interesting to follow this up and uh, see where it goes. Uh, the Security Council also highlights sexual violence against women by Houthis and the recruitment of children. Again, this was brought up in the UN panel report, and we see by them sanctioning the, the, the Houthi director of security in Sana'a that this is one of the reasons why uh, we saw a campaign for the last three or four weeks already, you know, with the hashtag Houthis are terrorists, highlighting the recruitment of children, uh, a lot of activists highlighting the funerals of children, um, the, when when the Houthis post their pictures. And interesting enough, this week, uh, uh, social media started uh, having these reports that a couple of children uh, fighting with government uh, troops were killed in a front. I haven't confirmed this yet, but we saw a couple of pictures being shared on social media um, highlighting the use of child soldiers by pro-government troops, which could be interesting if it's confirmed. Um, again, a week before the next donor conference kicks off, the UN Security Council is highlighting the humanitarian situation and, 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 and uh, calling attention to the COVID crisis, which now on, on the news we're hearing the potential of a possible second wave in Yemen, which is definitely a concern.
uh, we then move again into the political uh, into the political transition, uh, which is still within the framework of the GCC initiative of, of November 2011. Again, a problematic because we don't see the institutions keeping up with reality on the ground, uh, keeping up with the changes, the different environment, the different conditions that we're seeing today in 2021 versus what we saw in 2011. In this paragraph five, we see again that mention of the Yemeni Coast Guard, which I just went through. And then it highlights in paragraph seven, the designation criteria, which again is what brought up the sanctions um, this week of the Houthi director of security in Sana'a. Paragraph nine just extends the mandate of a panel of experts, asks the secretary general to nominate the next members of the panel of experts, and then expecting a midterm uh, update report, which comes around July, yep, July, 2021. And that's it. That's mostly all of it. And like I said, um, kind of disappointed that we did not see any more, any stronger language, uh, you, you, you know, pick and choosing when they mentioned the Houthis and, and, and when they didn't still. And it shows a lot of, of the tension in, in, in the Security Council behind closed doors, negotiating the language and, and, and how the new president, uh, U.S. President Biden, is going to face this, you know, resistance uh, for his new ambassador to the UN, which was just named this last week. So we'll, we'll continue to follow this. We'll continue to see how things develop uh, with the work by the UN, UN agencies. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens with this UN donors uh, conference coming up. I believe it's, it happened on the 1st of March. So hopefully by our next episode, we'll have an update uh, on the situation. This thing just doesn't get better, Estrach. Does the UN seems to be stuck in 2011 mode, in my opinion. But we'll discuss with our guest coming up with Yasmin to see what she sees and with our panel guests later on to see in the second uh, segment to see what, what their opinion is, what they're, what they're experiencing in, in Aden with our friend Sahar. And, and elsewhere uh, with the Yemeni community. But now it's time to welcome, I think our friend Yasmin is ready in Madib. I think it's time to bring her in, say hi to her. Hopefully the internet is good enough for us to have a really good conversation. And let's move on to our chat with Yasmin. Hello, everyone. Now we're we're here with a good friend, Ustada Yasmin Al-Kadi, who's joining us from Madhub. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Thank you very much for joining us. It's so late in, in, in matter. We really appreciate you joining us today. I want to, I, I, we invited uh, Ustada Yasmin 
whom everyone should know who she is, very active on social media, very active uh, in humanitarian affairs in, in, in Yemen, an award-winning activist. We really appreciate her time. And we're inviting her to speak to us, to give us an update on what's going on in Madhub today. Uh, we are recording on the 27th of February. And as we hear, Houthis are claiming to be very close to, to the city of Madhub already. And we want, we want a quick update of what's going on, what, what people in Madhub are living and what people in Madhub are, are seeing uh, today. Just last, just last night, uh, we, on, on Friday, we heard that the Houthis were launching more missiles into the city, into residential areas uh, of Madhub. And Ustada Yasmin, give us an update. What, uh, how is Madhub uh, this evening on Saturday? طبعا مساء البارحه تم استهداف مارب بسبع صواريخ باليستيه وايضا فجر اليوم اثنين يعني من من مساء امس الى اليوم الصباح تقريبا تسع صواريخ وطائرات مسيره على المدينه يستهدف المدنيين طبعا لانها في الجبهات في جبهات القتال يواجه الجيش الوطني ويواجهوه القبائل ويتلقى يعني مقاتليه يخسر مقاتلين كثير على اطراف مارب وبعدها يقوم بضرب بضرب المدنيين يغطي على هزيمته في الجبهات لكي يحقق انتصارات وهميه يعني للمتابعين. اوكي since yesterday until today morning early morning uh, they have uh, they have targeted marib with uh, seven to nine uh, ballistic ballistic uh, uh, rockets and uh, they are actually targeting uh, civilians because um, because he loses so many people from his uh, side he's losing uh, his you know fighters and soldiers so in order to uh, to cover his uh, uh, his defeat, he would um, target civilians. Thank you. And how? What are we seeing? What are we seeing now in the IDP camps and the camps for displaced persons around the 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 Madhab Dam? طبعاً مثل ما هو في في الخريطة. في جهة سرواح مديرية سرواح بعد مديرية سرواح في منطقة اسمها الزور وجنب الزور على على ضفاف السد في مخيم اسمه مخيم الهيال ومخيم الصوابين يعني الزور والصوابين والهيال في في التصعيد والعدوان الاخير على مأرب تم نزوح هذه الثلاث مخيمات نزوحهم نزحوا الى الى مخيم الروضه في الجهه الاخرى من السد يعني مخيم الزول والهيئه وايش الثالث؟ الصوابين الصوابين كلها تسمى مخيمات ذنا جميعها يعني مخيمات ذنا طبعا 
الزور هي منطقة فيها سكان أصليين اللي هم من قبائل جهم الزور يعني منطقة الزور وفيها أيضا نازحين نازحين من صرواح يعني نفس القبيلة ونازحين من من المحافظات الأخرى في نازحين من صنعاء ومن تعز كانوا موجودين في هذا المخيم في مخيم الزور هم يسموه مخيم المستشفى لكن احنا نسميه مخيم الزور آه طبعا هم الاعلام طبعا المخيم اللي في الزور يسموه المستشفى مخيم المستشفى وهو في منطقه الزور آه في 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 شيء طبعا حاصل في هذا الاسبوعين وانا متاكده منه شخصيا وشاهدته بنفسي اللي هو في مخيم الصوابين ومخيم الهيال نزحوا نزحوا النازحين الموجودين فيه من ابناء قبيله جهم وغيرهم نزحوا الى الروضه وفي اسر بقيت قليله في الصوابين طبعا في شيء ان الحوثيين مقاتلينهم وطقومهم تدخل الى المخيمات يعني شفتها انا بنفسي في مخيم الصوابين ومخيم الهيال شاهدت تقوم حوثيين دخلت اليها وايضا يعني افراد افراد حوثيين فهناك من 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 الموجودين من ابناء جهم في صوابين يعني يقولون انهم طردوهم يقولون تم طردهم ولكن يمكن خرجت الطقوم فقط اما الاشخاص ما زالوا موجودين والدليل على ذلك انهم يعني ليله يعني يوم الخميس وامس الجمعه آه تم تسللهم من آه من مخيم الهيال وطلوعهم الى منطقه آه جبل ما يسمى البلد جبل البلد اي البلد البلد اه بالقاف أوكي. يعني طبعا استغلوا آه استغلوا المخيمات بلق اه استغلوا المخيمات طبعا استغلوا المخيمات لان لان قوات الشرعيه سواء قبائل او الجيش الوطني ما ما بيضربوش في المخيم وطبعا المخيم ما فيش فيه اسر نزحوا يعني يمكن باقي فيه اسر قليله يعني يمكن عشر اسر او اقل اوكي طبعا هذا شيء يعني ما حد يتكلم عنه نهائيا انا متاكده منه شفته بعيني لما رحت زرت مخيم الروضه اشوف النازحين الجداد اللي نزحوا من من المستشفى ومن ومن الصواب الهيال كنت اشوف يعني من جهه السد مثل ما هو في الصوره من جهه السد الاخرى كنت اشوف الطقوم يعني الطقوم الحوثيين. اوكي اه اخذ فرصه اترجم. اترجمي وبعدين نكمل. طيب سو فيرست اوف اول شي توكت اباوت ثري مين كامبس الزور ومخيم عند الهيال اند الصوابين. So those are like um, they also people from from these camps uh, displaced uh, into um, into nearby Maribdam. So uh, then um, the Houthis and and their and their militias they they used the camps to sneak into the city and uh, to control the area over there. She said she uh, she saw them. She witnessed them with her bare eyes, and she says like nobody speaks about it. And uh, and uh, uh, but like um, she saw that by by her by her eyes. 
for our friends that are listening to this podcast and not yet watching on YouTube, uh, we are looking at a map of the area around the Matic Dam. Uh, Ustada just mean just explained uh, what the where the camps are, uh, such as in the Sur uh, area. You have a Mustashfa camp uh, nearby. Uh, this is the, the there are three camps. She's highlighted three camps west of the dam, just over the mountains uh, from the dam. So you have Mustashfa camp, which is in Azur. Then you have uh, Al Hayal camp, which is right on Al Hayal and uh, Dana Asawabin. Asawabin are on the west side of the dam, uh, about the middle area of the, uh, of the dam area. And then on the eastern side of the dam, we have a Rosa camp, we have a Lajma camp. And this is called, uh, close to uh, Jabal uh, Adaidim, which the Houthis have claimed uh, in the Arak uh, village, which Houthis have claimed this week to have taken this area. Uh, Ustada Jasmin has highlighted uh, the area around the dam because it's a very, ten, uh, very volatile area at the moment. We're back and forth. The forces from the government and the Houthis claim to have taken uh, territory there over the last seven to ten days, and so in the map we are showing uh, where these camps are in relation to the city of Marib, which if we can see at the moment, I'm I'm going to show you when we measure uh, the distance. Let's say from Azur to Marib city is in less than ten miles. Um, less than 10 miles from from the main city or less than 16, around 15 and a half kilometers from the city of Marib. Um, Ustada, Yasmin, we, we heard uh, from the Houthis last night on Friday that they were already at Al-Balak Mountain. Uh, is there any confirmation yet from, from the government about this? Okay. Uh, actually, she said uh, the Houthis could uh, get in, uh, sneak into the Al Balak Mount, and uh, she said also all the all those three camps are called Al Mustashfa. They call it Al Mustashfa. And uh, these are the ones in Azur. Yeah, uh, Azur and Al Hayal and Sawabin. They all called. Uh, uh, sorry, they called Bana. Okay. And Azor is called Al Mustashfa. Thank you. Thank you. Ustad Jasmine, where are these IDPs going? Where, what is their new destination? If they're being displaced from the camps, where are they going? يعني بالجهة الأخرى من السد مخيم الروضة وفي والنازحين يعني من غير قبيل جام ذهبوا إلى المدينة وذهبوا إلى الوادي إلى مديرية الوادي المدينة يعني الوادي مديرية طبعا هو عرفه مديرية مديرية الوادي ومديرية المدينة المدينة اللي هي المركز مركز المحافظة 
اللي فيها الكثافه السكانيه هذول النازحين ذهبوا لهناك بس معظم بس قبائل جاهم ابناء سرواح ذهبوا الى مخيم الروضه لانها منطقتهم القبليه يعني الارض ارضهم اوكي um, she says the uh, people uh, in the caps they are like divided into two الجهم uh, those who are tribal uh, people they they've been uh, displaced into الروضه uh, because it's uh, it's close to them those people come from jahm jahm tribe the others uh, moved to al uh, madina district and al wadi district so what we see from azur here on the, in the west side of the dam uh, just south of al balak mountain uh, a jahm tribe from azur uh, have moved to roda camp here on the east side of the dam uh, they have crossed uh, around into this safer area still under the government. And most people have then left uh, to the west uh, area in other uh, districts. I have I have problem hearing you. I hear someone else. Thank you, Stella Jasmine. Um, any closing comments at the moment? Uh, this week, the last week of February, uh, what are you what are you expecting to see this coming week? Uh, are the government forces? Is there a possibility that the government forces will begin pushing the Houthis farther west? وطبعا تم قتلهم كامل ذي سللوا الى البلد وتم يعني نزولهم الى الى ما بعد الزور يعني نزلوا من البلد الى بعد الزور طبعا قلت ليش ركزي على هذه النقطه لو سمحتي انهم استغلوا المخيمات مخيم الهيال ودخلوا من من يعني وسط النازحين فهذا يعني يعني انتهاك بعد هذا طبعا الان عندنا في مأرب فطبعا نزوح يعني خيال الوضع الإنساني نزوح بعد نزوح بعد نزوح طبعا يعني فرضا لو أخذنا بالتصور الذي يقولوا لو لو مارب سقطت طبعا أنا كامرأة يمنية وماربية وأعيش في مارب أنا لا أتوقع سقوط مارب أبدا يعني من منطلق ماذا من منطلق قبائل مارب يعني يموت القبيلي ولا احد ياخذ ارضه منه بالقوه طبعا والدليل شوفي قبائل جهم قبائل جهم لما نزحوا للنزوح الثالث ما غادروا شي الروضه النازحين الاخرين غادروا قبائل جهم لم تغادر الروضه طبعا النازحين اليمنيين الاخرين هم جميعهم يعني مطرودين من الحوثيين يعني سواء صحفيين او سياسيين او مدنيين طبعا الحوثي كل جميعنا كيمنيين من مختلف الاطياف السياسيه او المستقلين نعرف جرائم الحوثي 
وخصوصا يعني جرائمه ضد ضد النساء الحوثي الان يجرم حريه المراه طبعا قبل يومين الشخص الحوثي الذي اغتصب النساء اسمه سلطان لبن تقريبا الذي في قائمه العقوبات يعني قبل يومين قرار مجلس انهم اضافوا له الى من ضمن الاشخاص الذين تم يعني الى قائمه العقوبات فاحنا كنساء يمنيات يعني التعايش مع الحوثيين صعب التعايش مع الحوثيين طبعا محافظه مأرب محافظه نفطيه الى حد اللحظه هذه قاطره ناقلات الغاز يعني ذاهبه الى صنعاء لم 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 يتم توقيف الغاز ابدا على المواطنين يعني لو الان في وقت يمكن اخرج اصور لكم يعني طريق قريب مني قريب مني طريق الى صنعاء الطريق والناقلات تمر مننا من عندنا من مأرب تطلع الى صنعاء طبعا في حال وطبعا الحوثي هو يبيعها باسعار خياليه ويستغل المواطنين في صنعاء ويبيع لهم باسعار سعر مضاعف عندنا في مأرب سعر الغاز 3000 ريال بينما الحوثي يبيعها من 13000 و10000 يعني يستغل يستغل في حال يعني طبعا انا لا اخذ هذا السيناريو لكن بناء على يعني تصوركم انتم في حال الحوثي يعني ولن يدخل طبعا واكد هذه الكلمه دخل لن 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 يكون هناك استقرار ابدا يعني من القبائل ومن اليمنيين لانهم مطرودين فرضنا سقطت مأرب يعني حضرموت شبه ستسقط ستسقط جنوب اليمن ايضا وطبعا ستتضرر المملكه العربيه السعوديه وستتضرر عمان يعني المنطقه كلها ستتضرر طبعا ما دام العالم ساكت على جرائم الحوثي ضد اليمنيين يعني احنا بالنسبه لنا كيمنيين الحوثي حاله حال القاعده والارهابيه لانه معتدي على اليمنيين معتدي على المدنيين معتدي على النساء يجرم خروج المراه طبعا احنا النساء اليمنيات جميعنا يعني النساء نرتدي العبايه السوداء ومحجبات ومنقبات ومع ذلك الحوثي في عقيدته وفكره انه حرام ان المراه تخرج يعني منع الان النساء من العمل في صنعاء حتى على مستوى المطاعم لا رواتب لا تستطيع المراه ان يعني ان تجلب الاكل لاطفالها فترجع المراه ان تشتغل ويحرم خروجها من المنزل ومن خرجت او تكلم اكمل انت ممكن تكتبي وبعدين ترجمي براحتك اكمل يعني كلامي ايوه ايوه كمل ما تشتي استحاله ان الحوثي يحصل يعني يدخل مارب واذا دخل مارب فانها ستتحول يعني حرب طائفيه عرقيه يعني يعني كلها ستكون حرب دمويه لن يكون هناك استقرار حتى ساعه واحده لن لن يستقر المرء يعني يستقر الوضع في مارب ساعه واحده لان ما حد بيقبل الحوثي يعني ليس لحاطن في مارب وجميع سكان مارب وابناء مارب والنازحين في مارب كلهم يرفضوا فكر الحوثي لانه فكر عنصري ارهابي دموي الحوثي جلب الموت لليمنيين يعني ست سنوات كم كم من شباب اليمن يعني سواء الانصاره او يعني او يعني المناهضين فكر الحوثي فاستحاله يتم استقرار في مارب وطبعا ستنشا الجماعات الارهابيه اكثر واكثر وستكون هناك يعني جماعات اخرى يعني ضد الحوثي وستكون هناك صراعات لن يكون هناك اي استقرار في مارب والنفط وغيره سيتضرر يعني مارب الان تعتبر بنيه يعني بدات فيها البنيه التحتيه تحسن فيها استقرار يعني انا كمراه يمنيه وغيري من النساء اليمنيات من صنعاء من تعز 
من من محافظات اخرى موجودات عندنا في مارب يشتغل ناشطات مرسن مارس شغلنا بارياحيه ما والمواطنين الذين معهم تجارات او غيرها يشتغلوا في مارب يعني براحه يعني فرق ما حد ما يعني الحوثي مرفوض مرفوض ايوه قلت له كلهم لانهم تسللوا من وسط الناس يعني طلعوا الى البلد واليوم الصباح اليوم الصباح يعني البلد الغربي هذا ايش ديريا ولا ايش؟ لا لا البلد الغربي هو جبل جبل المطل على الزور اوكي البلد الغربي يعني اللي هو مطل على 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 مخيم الزور فهم طبعا نازحين الان هناك كلهم نازحون نفس المكان نازحين الان فيه النازحين موجودين قليل قليل من النازحين موجودين في الهيال والصوابين الذي استغلهم الحوثي ودخل من اوساطهم وطلع البلد من جهه الهيال يعني استغل النازحين طلع من اوساط النازحين لان الشرعيه استحاله تضرب المخيم الى من الهيال الى البلاغ الغربي اوكي اول شيء دخلوا الى الصوابين وبعد من الصوابين للهيال طيب والناس اللي في هذه المخيمات راحوا فين؟ الزور طبعا راحوا بعضهم قلت لي وبعضهم الى المدينه والى الوادي شي uh, سيد The Houthis have uh, have sneaked through um, Al Hayal camp and then into the Al uh, uh, Mount. But all those who sneak uh, sneaked out, all have been killed, all of them. Uh, and uh, she uh, she stresses the, the point that it's 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 a crime to uh, to use the camps to to sneak with their militias into. Um, you know, into the into the the place they are in now, and she said that uh, five camp already stopped. They the from one for four camp, five of them uh, have been stopped, and the people are very angry because uh, most of them already like they are um, displaced more than once. Some of them are fourth, so people are just uh, fed up and will not stop. So in case, and she says this is impossible, in case Houthis uh, have, have control of the city, there will not be any uh, stability. All people will, you know, uh, will, will fight against Houthi because unless do that, they will, it will be like dangerous uh, to the Saudi Arabia and to Oman and to all the area over there. They won't be stable. So she, she, say, she thinks this is not going to happen. And she stresses the point that uh, Houthis are just really criminals. Uh, they use uh, people, they use children, they uh, th- they work uh, against women, and they they rape women. The latest one named uh, Sultan, named Sultan, uh, is um, has raped some women. This so is uh, this is the director. This is the director of security in Sanaa that was just sanctioned uh, by the UN Security Council on Thursday. Uh, what do you mean by directory? Yeah. So, uh, uh, this is it. She said, she said uh, the people from, from Jahm tribe, uh, they, this time they, they decide not to displace. They decide to fight against the, the Houthi because it, it's going to be like continuous displacing. Uh, the, the other people who were displaced, they just um, 
they they actually they are they are they are the ones who who run away actually from Houthis from from many places around uh, uh, Yemen. So um, they, they're not like the people from from the tribes like Jahan, for example. And uh, they some some of them would fight, but some of them uh, also will not. But uh, the tribal people will stay there and they would they would fight until death against Houthi. Thank you very much, Ustala Jasmine. We really appreciate this update you've given us. Shukran. ا<音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音><音
uh, it's like they, they, they give them uh, the green light to kill more people and, uh, and um, use more children and come back even stronger. Yes, indeed. Uh, Ustada, Jasmine, thank you very much. Shukran Jasil, and thank you for your time. Uh, I really appreciate you being out this late and, uh, and going out of your way to finding a good spot uh, to join us. I hope that we can invite you again soon to talk to us more about what's going on in Madib and, and, and give us an update. And yes, as you, as you said, we hope that there is a ceasefire soon and we hope that there are no more uh, direct attacks on the city and, 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 and the civilians are definitely spared of any, any further casualties. Thank you, Ustada Jasmine. Uh, Thank you. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It is very nice to see you again. It's been a long time and I uh, hope to see you and your sisters uh, in person uh, pretty soon in, in Yemen. Good luck. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, Esherak. Okay, so now that was an excellent conversation with our friend Jasmine uh, Al-Qadi, who was joining us from Madib. Uh, we had some issues with the internet, but it, it all went well. Uh, apologies uh, to everyone listening or watching later on. If, if you see some sort of chaotic broadcasting uh, this time around, because we have to deal with that, uh, we're dealing with still dealing with the internet issues in Aden. Uh, again, Ashrak, thank you for stepping up and, and helping me translate. Oh, sure. You're welcome. Anytime. Our friend Ali Mahmoud uh, was not available today because of the internet issues uh, in, uh, in Aden and Tawahi and other areas. There, I think there's a tower issue. But I think we're ready for our main event, which is this awesome podcast segment that I've been trying to do since we first came up with this with this idea for this podcast. Um, this pod, this episode was supposed to be our fourth episode. For Ali, Mahmoud, and I, we agreed we're going to do something like this, you know, put together a panel of Yemeni women um, as our fourth episode. But as you've seen, we're on our eighth episode already uh, in 60 days because the news have kind of overtaken, you, you, you know, events for us. And we're trying to catch up and making sure that we're not making podcasts about history or anything that we're keeping up with events in Yemen that we're bringing you, our listeners, you, our viewers, uh, you know, up to date, you, you know, instant reaction to, to events. And as we saw today, we reviewed the UN panel, the UN security uh, council resolution that came out on Thursday, uh, the 20, what was the date? The 24th, the, no, the 25th, the 25th of February. So now we're recording on the Saturday, the 27th, and we have an awesome panel today. Uh, we've brought four amazing Yemeni women living everywhere. In, in, uh, in the world, we have um, Amina Atek, who will join us from Liverpool. 
the UK. She's originally born in Rada, born in Albeida, and she's going to give us an amazing look into uh, her experience visiting her village, her home village, but yet more living in the UK as a British Yemeni. Uh, we have Sahar uh, Nuruddin, a, a very good friend of mine uh, in Aden. She she's a she's worked for humanitarian agencies. Uh, strong woman, uh, feminist, pushing for women's issues in, in, in Aden, uh, hardworking uh, professional. She is amazing, and she's going to tell us, give us an update of, of, of what it is like to, to, to be in Aden today. Uh, we have Eshak uh, Abdelghani, who's joining us from, uh, from Malaysia. Um, her story, she'll tell us a little bit about her story, uh, living in Sana'a and, and being basically displaced because of the war. Uh, so what we're seeing is, you, you, you know, what we're bringing you is these different perspectives of of, uh, of the diaspora, the Yemeni diaspora, their experiences, and in, in, in this new generation, Eshak, we'll, we'll talk about your situation, but there is this new generation that's being displaced. Um, by the current war. And then we'll have, we'll be joined uh, by Dajma Kersted, who is a Yemeni of Hadrami background, born in Somalia, has worked in Yemen for a very long time, uh, and now lives in the U.S. And definitely we want to hear a lot from her and her experience working in Yemen. So ladies, I think Sahar has joined us now uh, from Aden. And if I may, I know Najma is supposed to come back in with some video soon. <laughs> um, but if I may, I want to start with Amina. Uh, your story, um, I mean, it's amazing. I first, you know, heard of you. I'm, I'm sorry, but my first time I heard about your story was uh, in the first episode for our friend Kip's uh, podcast, Yemenist, you know, the Yemenist, I, that was an amazing podcast episode. And your story, you know, I've sent all my friends, Yemeni friends, that, that episode so they can hear your story and, and, and how you describe, you know, living in, in the UK uh, and visiting uh, Al-Bayda. Can you, can you tell us a little bit about that uh, to our new audience here at Diwan? Yeah, well, thank you so much for inviting me. Um, as you can tell, I hold a, a very strong Scouse accent, which is also part of, I think, this conversation of the diaspora, what we what we leave behind, but what also do we take with us from this new land? Um, and I think it's also that 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 moment of, of expression of, of who we are as people, um, but also what we bring, the fact that yeah, many people exist all over the world which people get quite shocked. Um, and I believe mm -hmm. that you can find a Yemeni anywhere. <laughs> so um, just to give some context, a background of, of what I do. So I'm a writer. My main form is poetry. So I'm also a performance artist. So I perform my poetry in British uh, audiences. So mainly middle-class audiences, uh, which is an interesting other thing is when I'm writing about Yemen and I'm performing to an audience that is non-Yemeni, how is that received? Um, and then the other thing, I, I'm also an activist and I also facilitate an, an art practitioner. So um, I um, 
came to the UK in 1999. My granddad came around the late 50s to 60s. So after World War II in Britain, a lot of Yemeni people saw an opportunity to go to Liverpool because of, you know, after the war, there was an opportunity for um, to restart the country and people needed needed that. And I say that because a lot of people think that most people that migrated to the West, they needed something from the, the you know, the West. No, the West also needed the Yemeni community to come and bring, and what the Yemeni community brought at the time was news agents. They were, they became into shopkeepers. And, and that was, if when we look at the COVID pandemic now in terms of who is a key worker, that narrative changed. Key workers are now people that work in uh, malls and you know grocery stores and because they're the ones that provide you with your essentials your survival needs and the Yemeni community was like that in the 1950s to 60s they were you know they they they're the ones that opened at 6 a.m to bring your milk your bread your essentials because everywhere else opened a bit later but also the Yemeni people because it came natural to them they come from a, a nature of hospitality so naturally they knew how to talk to customers even though English was not their first language and most of them didn't even know how to communicate in English so how did they serve a non-Yemeni community is because they have that nature of hospitality they know how to give and they know also how to receive so that came really natural and the Yemeni community just really jumped at that opportunity and they really flourished brought their wives which my grandmother then came and what had happened is my dad then was born here so my dad had a very British scouse upbringing um, even the way he dressed did not see him until he was 20 years of age which was very different to mine but my dad went to Yemen at the age of 20 and then fell in love with my mother and got married and then I was born. <laughs> and I was born in Rada'a Malah um, and we came in 1999, as, as I mentioned. But what happens when you arrive to here and what happens to now? What journey do we go through as, as you know, as young people of the diaspora growing into the adult world? It was only until, you know, I remember the times when I was in Arabic school, learning the, the language Arabic seemed like the worst thing in the world. It seemed like so disengaged. I do not want to be associated with it. And I'm not saying that I said it vocally, it was a feeling. And I think it's because when we're living in the diaspora, we're always told that this home is only temporary and we're going to go back home soon. Even when it came to money, money became a really big issue because obviously a lot of Yemeni families were working class because they were still starting out their lives here. So a lot of them were still, you know, trying to kind of work up the ladder. And so money became part of our lives and our conversation constantly. So, and the biggest issue was, you know, save your money because we need to build homes in Yemen. And, and to me, so what that did, it, it made me not look after my environment. So something that I had in the UK, I didn't look after it because I knew that this everything was temporary. The language, my my Arabic was not looked after because I knew that I don't need it anymore living here. So really what happened is this, you get this identity crisis because you're like, am I Yemeni or, or am I British? But then when you're traveling back to Yemen every summer holiday, people look at you as either a money tree or they look at you as you have a different you're an alien from a different planet and I think they're just intrigued by how much the Yemeni lives in me or lives in us so I go back to Yemen and I'm like 
I'm going to wear my dinner, put my hijab in a little turban, start, you know, wash, start washing my clothes and, you know, drying my clothes in the sun. And I right. loved it, you know? So, and all the Yemeni girls in Yemen are like, huh? Like, we have washers here, you know? <laughs> They're like, you know, where did you learn to do this? And I go into the kitchen, chop the onions, you know, like, I know my baharas and all of that. And they're like, who taught you? And I'm like, you know what? The Yemeni never leaves. So when I came back to the UK, I said, if the Yemen never leaves from me, then what can I do with that? I said, the first thing that's missing is value. I don't value myself as a Yemeni woman, not just a woman, but a Yemeni. And that became because I realized when I was campaigning and I, you know, in the activism work in terms of representation, I realized Google as our main web search is problematic because when I search Yemen as a young person at the age of say 15 and I want to find out what my home country looks like from the other side you get fear terror and do you want to be associated with that I don't think so because you want to hide it right. it's, it's like this is not my home right so definitely um so what I did from that is I used it as an advantage. I said, I need to change my branding as a writer. So when I started going into the writing industry, I was known as the Muslim writer because people identify you. But I said to myself, I'm more than Muslim, you know? I'm like hilarious, you know, do you know what I mean? I can drop some... <laughs> but, you right. know, I have all the characteristics that are not just... My identity is just Muslim. I am Yemeni and I'm Scouse. You know, there's a, a probably 2.00% that you'll find a Yemeni scouser because it, it, it's a minority but also it's a very unique minority and also it shows the, the, the diaspora journeys that people made to Liverpool because we've got one of the biggest Yemeni Arab communities in the UK which is the Yemeni community we came pre-war you know South Shields we had seamen who married into Irish and white families so there's something that needs to be told, but I also think I can't take away the British as well. The Britishness is also as important as my Yemeni because I played a role in this country. So it's about learning to, 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 to and, and this is one key message that I learned, is who told us that we have to sacrifice one home for the other? No one ever yeah. told you. Know, we, we conform to that because of how structural racism, Islamophobia, especially right. in the West, has made us hate who we are and dislike who we are. And also the internet plays a role because of the structural racism in the algorithms of how we see our home. Right. So I said to myself, I need to do something. I need to represent my home in the way I see it. And that is in beauty, that is in resilience, that is in history, that is in our women. I mean, women, Yemeni women alone need a book, you know? Yeah. And, the, and you know, the special thing about it is the world hasn't even heard about us. They haven't seen it. And Absolutely. I just... I can't wait till the world fully understands and sees Yemen. However, I know Yemen is going through a very difficult time and um, I acknowledge the privilege that I have being far away from Yemen in this. And I say to myself, well, there's only so much I can understand what it what it is to live under war. Um, but it's also the privilege that I have in the spaces that are non-Yemeni in the UK that I can also raise awareness about Yemen right. in this space so I also do acknowledge my privilege in that way but um Yemen gets me emotional when I talk about it um, and that's not out of sadness that's out of happiness um I, I, I'm just so glad that through my art 
through my activism that I got to value myself as not just as a woman, but also as a Yemeni. Right. Um, and I just hope that our young people, our elders change their attitude towards that. I filmed a documentary last year called Unheard Voices, and it was looking at Yemeni news agents in Liverpool. And when I was filming with them, they were like, oh, no, it's not important. You know, who wants to listen to our story? And I'm like, this is sad. It's really sad that we we think this of ourselves. Yeah. So please, if anyone is listening to this, watching this, document your stories, write about them. There is a market for us and it's ready for us. So document it, write it, publish it, produce it, make a play, make a film. We need visibility and representation. We come big, small, tall, short, and we're all over the world now, especially exactly. with the world. So yeah, but thank you so much. Um, I no, no, no. You, you just you just mentioned a million things that I've been wanting to touch upon. You 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 know for a very long time. To begin with, this whole emotional thing is like it's even for me. I mean, ask Najma. We had a conversation just a couple of days ago, and and ask her how emotional it got between the two of us. You know, going back and forth, and I've known her since 2013, sort of. And, and, and uh, you know, even my wife afterward, you, you, you know, my wife uh, after after this conversation, the conversation with Najma, she's like, what were you saying? Why were you being so loud? You, 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 you know, so it, it's anytime I talk about Yemen and I'm not even Yemeni. Anytime I talk about Yemen, it's always emotional for me for a number of reasons. But, you know, what you just mentioned right now, would you just, you know, summarize for us? You know, I'm I'm Mexican. I was born in Mexico. I'm an immigrant to the U.S. And everything you just described, that's why I invited you today, because from when I heard you uh, uh, on, on the first podcast on the Yemenis, it hit right at my own experience. Everything you just described, if you just put a Mexican face on it, is exactly what we'd go through. You know, that identity. And, and, and the issue that I always bring up is that distance issue with the Yemeni community. I live in Los Angeles. I'm two and a half hours away from Mexico. I can go visit my country, you know, quote unquote, anytime I want, you know, for vacation. I can go on the weekend and drive four hours and have a great vacation in my country, you, 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 you know. But with Yemenis, unless you live somewhere in the Emirates or Oman, you, you, you know, just the, the distance, the travel, and we'll get into that in a little while ago, a little later with you describing the times when you got visited, Radha, but it's just, you know, a whole process just to go visit Yemen for the older generation or the newer generation. But for someone like me that is even more privileged, you know, living here in the U.S., whether we live in New York and we're five hours away on a flight, you know, you know, direct flight into anywhere in Mexico, or me in California just driving two hours or four hours and being in a in, in a tourist destination in my country, speaking my language with my people, um, it's just totally different. And it's something that, um, you, you know, we have a six year old daughter and. And I, you know, she loves Mexico. If you ask her where she want to go vacation, she's like, I want to go to our place in Mexico. And she's been to Europe and she's been to Egypt, you, 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 you know, but her thing is, I want to go to the beach and it's two and a half hours away. Um, but I'll, 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 I'll get back to you uh, on, on this because I have tons of questions for you as well. But our friend Sahar, I know that, that the situation is not that great right now in 
in uh, in in Aden, and 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 I kind of don't want to lose you, and I want to hear from you. So maybe if we jump from our scheduled script, you know, so we don't lose the hut, and, and we get to hear from her. Um, thank you so much, my friend. I hope the family is doing well. Yeah, we're all doing great. Alhamdulillah. Hi, everyone. I uh, hope you're very well at your end anyway, everywhere, inshallah. Oh, Yemenis like to struggle. It's in our blood. Although I'm not fully Yemeni, but still. <laughs> you're you're Adani. You're Adani. You're Adani. Yeah. <laughs> no, but uh, Sahar, we've known each other for, for a long time. Uh, yeah. through through your husband Allah uh, in, yeah. in, in Aden and, and I've seen you and your little girl growing and, and everything but you know we invited you I invited you here precisely because of this you know you are this woman in Aden from a big background you're Adeni mm -hmm. you, 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 you know you're southern there, there is this issue of identity which is you, 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 you yeah. know has its own complex has its own complexity and its help, you know? Um, so if you can summarize a little bit about your background and, and, and what you do in, in, in Aden and how you see the situation uh, today in, in Aden. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, first of all, I was not born in, in, in Aden even. I was born in Saudi Arabia, in Jeddah. My father came from a, an Indian background who were born in, in, in Somalia, imagine. My mother come from an Indian background who were born in, in Aden. So they met in Saudi Arabia and then they, uh, they married there. Uh, after I was 14, then we came back to Yemen as a Somali passport uh, uh, person. I'm not a refugee. Then after the age of 19, I, uh, I started to, um, uh, to claim for the Yemeni nationality as my mother hold the Yemeni nationality. So after a long way struggling, I got the nationality, the Yemeni nationality, which is I'm very proud of. Uh, yeah, it's a, it, maybe because I come from different backgrounds, uh, I can understand mostly what is happening in Yemen about the identity crisis, especially with the South thing. Uh, people who had the country before, they had the country, they had a separate uh, identity, and now they are merged with another's identity. They lost everything they have. They don't, they're not recognized as a, 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 a separate identity. Uh, entity. They are in something that they do not choose. But uh, after the war, after war and many crises, they chose to just to to leave what they, the unity. Yes, it's, uh, it's mixed emotions. It's, a, it's one country, it's a one land with many identities, with many crises, with many actually, with many thoughts. Everyone wants his own businesses to run, even this war. This is not a legitimate war, war at all. Not for the people in the South, not for the people in the North. Uh, even before the war, the conflict, if I could say, in 2015, Yemen was not heaven. Even before 2011, Yemen was not heaven. Even before 2007 or 2008, when the uh, the whole South thing started to to come up into the uh, to public, uh, people were not happy. 
even before the 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 British colony leave or before the independence or after the independence of the south um unfortunately people do not see the poor people now the middle age class of families are melting the huge suffering of women is just on the surface and actually it is the way where when um ngos or even un um agencies are um advertising to get more or to appeal for more help for yemen but it's the, the yani even the, the crisis in yemen even the war in, in yemen the the most important thing to look at is the suffering of ordinary people at the end it's women women are mothers women are sisters women women are the the burden holders uh yani um i was part of the yemeni feminist um, summit the third one actually uh in december and one of the uh, the claims or the out uh, the recommendations out of the summit was to represent women more into the government and bang when they announced the government none of the women were represented yani and uh, i see even now in the in if i could say the uh, the southern council um representing three women two weeks ago uh, in the uh, in uh, in one of the offices of the ministers i think the, the or media for the other governor for the other governor yeah. right the yeah. media yeah. the culture yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. three of them yeah lakin um what i see yes i i support pre- representing women but not from one side not from one sector one uh direction and what they are going to say is only for them is checking the, the the box yes we have represented women we we had a, a chance for women to represent themselves but what do they do right no it it is interesting you know we went through the the UN security council resolution from thursday we went through that earlier and you, you know the role of women was highlighted in the resolution they they do mention that uh you, you know the the issue with with no representation uh, on in the government or during in the in the talks in, in the, the peace, peace process talk. yeah in yeah. the in the they peace are, process yeah and, they are and, actually yeah go ahead please no no finish yeah uh, women are only in the peace talks within the consultative committees right they're right. not represented as, as women as delegates when, uh, yeah 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 all, so yeah. so you know one of these things that happened uh in the, in the week leading up to the announcement of of, of the uh, new cabinet in December was you know this campaign by women activists on on social media yeah. pushing for the government to name women and we saw we've talked about how the 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 cabinet decreased from 35 posts to 25 posts including the prime minister and how women were pushing for the for president hadi and and the prime minister uh, main to appoint women to certain positions to take women into consideration in these quotas because at the end of the day the the the, the cabinet was divided into quotas you know five for sdc four five for uh, islah etc so it, it, women were were asking and one of the things that i asked for is like okay you know why this campaign is not suggesting um i mean i thought that if women if this campaign by women we started suggesting names 
you know, for people to position in, in, into the government, uh, it would highlight, it, it would increase the pressure on the president, on the prime minister, and on the UN envoy. But we have to understand, and, and from my perspective, I push that we have to understand that the coalition government was formed outside of the UN process. This government was created within that new process led by Saudi Arabia. This is not a coalition government made under the auspices of the UN envoy. This is not part of the transition. This was a this was a coalition government out of a peace agreement between the SDC and the government of Yemen. So it 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 exists on a track of its own. And, and, and unfortunately, yes, it, you, you, you know, we see time and time again that the UN uh, posts these workshops in Amman or in Cairo with women and, 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 and the yeah. envoy praises. Imagine, yeah, imagine that when the envoy comes, uh, uh, Martin Griffiths visits Aden, women rush to his office. When any U European Union representative come to Aden, they rush to their offices with claims, with appeals, with requests, right. with, with and everything. Whenever, but no, no. And, and whenever we see meetings in, in, in Yemen between a government official and, and the UN envoy, where are the women? The woman happens to be an assistant of the UN envoy or a journal, a female journalist from the West or an analyst from the West, as, uh, as what we saw last week that a new group of analysts were visiting Aden. There were no women in that meeting except for the female from, 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 from the, the Western agency. And you know, there is no pressure there, there, there from anywhere, um, even for optics. You know, in, in our last seven episodes for, for the podcast, I've always talked about, you know, optics matter. Even if you're just doing it for public relations, optics matter. And even if you don't have a female decision maker, quote unquote, I mean, consider that optics matter and you should have some women in your meeting and have them speak and let us listen to what they say. You, you, you know, okay, so they're not high-ranking officials in the SDC. They're not high-ranking officials in any ministry, you know, but at least let us see the women that you're considering, that you have around uh, and, and stuff, you know. We'll get back to that, uh, Sahar, because it is an, uh, an interesting point. And, 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 and this is, again, this episode was supposed to be our fourth episode. It was supposed to be upfront, bringing up women's issues, but it's been our fault that we've been pushing and pushing, but I'm really glad that, that we're talking about this um, and, and, and we're discussing this. And, and, and this is perfect to, to, to lead into uh, our friend Estrak, uh, you know, in Malaysia, because she is, she and her family, are displaced because of the war. You, 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 you know, they, they, they are uh, in the diaspora now. They're in a migrant community uh, because uh, uh, they've been displaced by, by the war. And, and it's a whole different experience. Now we have a new generation uh, of migrants uh, uh, fleeing Yemen uh, for different reasons. It is no longer just economic reasons, maybe like your uh, grandfather, Amina, or, or your family, Sahar, um, but, or, or even Najma's family, but now it's because of conflict in Yemen. You're being pushed out of your country, whether it's to Djibouti, uh, an IDP camp, in, in a refugee camp in Djibouti, or, or someone else. Um, 
we, we saw the first people uh, back in 2017, uh, a Yemeni that died on the, on, on the sea on the way to Europe. Then we saw last year a couple of Yemenis that died. Uh, I, I believe it was a football player uh, that died from trying to cross the Mediterranean uh, uh, as a refugee. So we're starting to see these stories coming out and 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 a new dynamic in in, in the migration patterns and, and reasons for migrating for Yemenis. Ezra, your family was definitely pushed out of Sanaa. Yeah, uh, initially, actually, some uh, like my dad and, and mom. Uh, initially, they went out of Yemen uh, just for for medical purposes, and then when they wanted to come back, the Houthis already closed the airport, so they stuck. They stick away. They couldn't go back either to Aden or go anywhere else because uh, all the countries closed their borders uh, in front of Yemenis. Nobody accepts Yemenis to enter. Until late, uh, lately, Malaysia uh, was uh, one of the few countries that allowed Yemenis to end. So they they've been to Malaysia. Uh, I've been uh, I stayed in Yemen for a little bit, and then um, because of the Houthis, uh, you know, pressures and uh, you know making the all all the kind of lives very very like uh, narrow and uh, hard. And then I, I just searched to go out, uh, and I, I I get out of Yemen. Uh, it was it was a long journey from Sanaa to Aden, and it was a bit uh, adventurous because uh, there there used to be around like uh, like around um, maybe thirty uh, thirty points where there is uh, uh, people from both sides, and and even even unknown people uh, stopped the boss and ask everybody about their identities and what, what are they doing. And then you, you need to give them uh, a copy of your passport and, and tickets. So I, I printed like around maybe uh, maybe 15 copies of my tickets and passport to give them until I reached Aiden after a very, very long journey, I think 15 hours at least. And then fr from Aiden, uh, I stayed maybe for two days and then uh, I took a flight to Malaysia. And, uh, and uh, until the last moment, uh, I, I, I was doubting that the, 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 the Malaysian immigration will let me in. I was so afraid not to not to be in uh, because uh, at, that, at that time, many, many Yemenis uh, were displaced from, from, uh, from Yemen to Malaysia. So, um, the laws here become become were becoming more narrow in front of the uh, migrants uh, from Yemen. But Alhamdulillah, I've been in, and uh, Alhamdulillah until from then, I think 2018 until now, I'm here in Malaysia with your family. With yeah, with my family, Alhamdulillah. And your your properties in Yemen or in Sana'a and the relationship between your father, because I believe your father was a professor at, at Sana'a University and we have the issue with the salaries, et cetera. Uh, how do you, how is your family dealing with that situation? Well, <laughs> the salaries in Sana'a are all cut off. Uh, our properties uh, were almost taken by Houthis. Because actually, we only have the uh, 
uh, one property that, that we granted from Sana University for professors. And then Houthis have, when they controlled uh, Sana University, they took also all the properties. And, and that's why I, I couldn't stay there right. because they kicked everybody out. These, this was the complex, the residential complex inside Sanaa University for, for the yeah. for the teaching staff. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I remember I remember exactly. that area. Yeah. And and but your your father's salary is also not being paid by the Yemeni government by in from Riyadh. I mean, the still the Ministry of Higher Education, whether it's in whether it's under Houthis or not, is he is the Yemeni government helping in, yeah. in that respect? No, uh, no, no, at all. I, I, I've been lucky actually to do some processes to to let it, you know, go because unless I did that, that they would have been successful to cut it off and like without without any, you know, backup from the government. But the government, maybe I think they just give us uh, from two thousand, I think fifteen until now, maybe like around two salaries. Until now, there is no salary at all. Right, right, and we've also seen the 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 issues between the the government and students, such as yourself, because you were still studying uh, when when you landed in in, in Malaysia. The, we've seen the issue with the scholarships and the stipends that students are supposed to receive. It, how is that? How have you dealt with that in your situation? Well, uh, actually, uh, previously I, I I've granted a scholarship from the government. Uh, it, it was in another place, but uh, when I come to visit my my family, the Houthis has stopped it. So I, I couldn't I couldn't go out until 2018. And you uh, haven't been able to receive any of that while you're in Malaysia. Uh, after after that, uh, when I was in Aden, I I made the processes needed to transfer all my files from Sanaa to Aden. So then uh, I started to. To, to to have my salary but even this one we only receive one salary in in one year we we, we were supposed to have four salaries but we, we received only one uh right. we receive only one yearly yeah but we, without any reason actually because at the time when i did the processes there were lots of scholarships come from the uh from the gulf countries different countries i think uh Qatar, um Saudi Arabia, Emirates. Right. So right. We, we don't know why. Right. Well, we see that with students in Amman. We see that with students in Cairo. Uh, we see that with students uh, in Europe, you, you, you know, where there's stipends, their student stipends, their scholarships in India, uh, you know, stopped, even though the Yemeni government wants to present this facade that it's working, that, that it's functioning, that it's legitimate. You know, there are these duties and obligations, responsibilities of the government, which include the, the Yemenis abroad, the, whether they're students or, 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 or immigrants. And these obligations are not being, you, you know, met. They're, they're, it's, it's not functioning. It, it, you know, we just did a, a podcast about the legitimate government and, and, and out of the UN panel of experts. And uh, one of our guests made the, the, the comment, you know, that the GOI, the government of Yemen, is, is not legitimate because it doesn't have any support in it. And then when people on social media came back and said, how could you say that they're, 
they don't have any support, et cetera, et cetera. But you, yeah. you know, if there, if a government is not meeting their responsibilities of governance, you, you, yeah. you know, how legitimate is that? And people tried to, people attack the Houthis for the lack of legitimacy for, 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 for other reasons. But yet, if you talk to people in Sanaa, they say, well, we have water, we have electricity, et cetera. And those are part of governance. You, you, you know, the universities or the schools are open. Um, that's part of governing. It's not a perfect scenario. I'm not legitimizing what the Houthis are saying, are doing anywhere in, in, in the, under their control. But this is that debate. You, you, you know, what is legitimacy? And part of that legitimacy is governance, is delivering services, is tending to the needs of the population, whether they are in the country or abroad. That's why you have embassies. That's why you have consulates. And when, uh, you, you, you know, students in Malaysia, India, Cairo, Amman have to go to the embassy to protest because they don't have money to pay for the next semester or they don't have money to pay for their exams, that's a failure of governance. That's a failure to meet the responsibility, you, 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 you know. But uh, we'll get back in, into that issue. Thank you, Esther, for, for, for that insight. And Najma, now to you. I think you're hiding from us uh, this afternoon. But now to you, because you've you've worked in Sana'a, you've worked in Abia, and you've worked in Hadramaut with your family, and, and it's a completely different experience because you've worked with the Yemeni government before this resolution, be, be, before this revolution in 2011, and before the war in 2015. Um, how do you see the situation today for for Yemenis outside Yemen for for the diaspora? Um, well, I have a very different experience from most of you guys um, that are here today. Um, but before I get into that, I'm going to start with uh, a little background about myself. Um, I was born in Somalia. Um, we came to the U.S. back in 97. Um, a couple of years later, uh, we, I was sent to Yemen because I was becoming a rebel. <laughs> Um, so I went there, I stayed with my grandparents, but lucky for me, my grandfather was very, uh, well, they're Southerners and they lived in Aden. So he was actually more open than my dad and my mom ever were. Um, so I was, I was given the opportunity, you know, to finish school, get a job, go live by myself all of the things that I couldn't have done if I were in the U.S. living uh, with my parents. Uh, so that kind of actually worked out pretty well for me. Um, it hasn't been always easy because there are many times where I was being forced to get married. I was 13. I didn't understand why I was, you know, being told I needed to get married. But um, like I said, I had my grandfather who was by my side and was saying, you know, if you don't want to do it, you don't have to do it. Um, eventually, you know, that was getting hard because my uncles were on my parents' side, so they kept pushing the idea of me getting married. Um, and then finally, one day, I told my grandfather, you know what, I can't live with you guys because my needs are not being met. Like, there's going to be a problem if I stay here, like someone might die. <laughs> um, so I ended up moving. Uh, moving away from my grandparents' home. I went to Inma, uh, it's a little city in Aden. I lived there, um, but when I moved there, 
you know, my parents cut their financial support because I was being again, you know, I was going against the Adak. Um, so I had to find a job. Um, for some reason, one day I got lucky. I was talking to my taxi driver and he was like, you know, there's a, there's a job opportunity in Abyan and um, they're looking for a translator and I think you'd be good for it. So um, I applied for the job. Um, I got hired by IOM. Um, I worked in Abyan for a couple of months and then that was a nightmare. Um, they had to, they told me they, I couldn't stay there anymore. I had to be transferred to the uh, headquarters um, in Sana'a. So that's how I ended up uh, moving to Sana'a. And this was around when? Around this one was time. in 2013, I believe. Um, it might have been 2011, uh, 12 or 13, I'm not really sure. Um, but I did end up uh, working with IOM for two years. Um, and this was this was when the Houthis were becoming very, very influential in Sana'a and they were trying to take over um, the state. So, you know, I thought, hey, if I stay here, uh, you know, I probably won't, um, won't survive because I would have to go back to Aden and that's not what I wanna do. Um, so I'm, I got lucky and I left uh, Sana'a a day before, actually not a day, a couple of hours before they took over um, the airport. I actually got to Aden. I flew from Sanaa to Aden to say goodbye to my uh, grandmother and you know family members. But I remember um, being in the airport and then telling me, oh, you know, you're gonna miss your flight to Turkey because I was leaving from Aden to Turkey to the US um, because the airport is seized. And I was like, you know, Shit! Excuse my language. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm doomed. I'm gonna. We're all adults country. here. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, oh my god, if this couldn't have been, you know, perfect timing. But somehow, I don't know. They managed to um, negotiate with them that night, and they um, let the planes that were already in Sanaa Airport uh, fly to um, Aden. So that's how I left uh, Yemen. I came here um, with every intention of moving to DC and becoming, you know, uh, an activist. But that's when I met my husband and I moved here to Virginia. This was uh, at the end of 2014, actually. It happened real quick. Um, and then because of his, you know, his job, he's a former military. Um, I could, I didn't want to put him in a position where I was, you know, an activist because of his uh, clearance and stuff. Um, so I stopped that. Uh, I just became a housewife. But it's hard to not be an activist when you know you have so much to give. If I was um, any Yemeni woman in Yemen would do anything to, you know, to be in my position right now. So I feel like I owe it to them to speak for them. Um, since I have the opportunity to do so. Um, but it, it has been a struggle because it's hard. I'm very emotional, especially when it comes to Yemen. Um, I've tried not to get involved so many times. I don't even watch the news because when I do, um, I get 
super emotional and I want to fix it, but I can only do so much. Um, so that's what, yeah. No, no, no. I mean, all of these things that you're just like with Amina's insight, you know, one of the things that 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 people have started to, to talk about is the issue of trauma. Right. Back in 2006, I started working with a with a CSO in Sanaa with Dr. Nazar Ghanem, and he had the first anonymous mental health line hotline in Sanaa. You know, and this allowed Yemenis to call in and talk to a psychologist or a social worker. Um, And we know the stigma that comes with, you know, mental health issues in a society like 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 Yemen. Uh, But, you you, you know, you you brought up the issue of trauma, you, you, you know, which a lot of the focus has been on PTSD, on children and on women and on soldiers and the people that, that in Sana'a or Aden, Taiz, Madhub, people that have seen the war, that have been going through six years of bombing, you know, and 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 the mental trauma that there that that the crisis that there must be under the surface, because again, we don't have mental health professionals uh, working in, in in Yemen, and we don't have any major you, you know INGO focusing on this issue that produces data to let us know what's going on. This is one of the things that I've tried to to push some CSOs to work on. Uh, but now imagine, you know, someone like Esra, you, you, you know, uh, leaving because of war and getting into this new environment and dealing with a, a completely new uh, scenario that was not planned. I mean, you know, like Amina's uh, you, 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 you know, journey was planned. You know, your parents said it's time for us to go, you, you know, back to England, everything. But someone like uh, Esrak and other uh, displaced persons, you know, back in 2015, we heard of people jumping on little dows, little boats and going from Taiz into Djibouti, you know, 15, 20 hour on a, on a boat with kids and, you know, you know and, and so I think that that's one of those issues that definitely someone needs to address. Someone needs to dedicate some time and some money into dealing with, 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 with this PTSD issues, with those mental health issues. Uh, one of the things uh, you brought up, Najma, is also this uh, adapting to, to this life you, you, you know, elsewhere, adapting. Uh, I mean, you are in a particular situation where, you know, you married someone that's not Yemeni, and that mm-hmm. is a completely, you know, different scenario, a different lifestyle. You know, you, 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 you have a uh, further distance from, from the Yemeni community because, you, you, you know, your husband's not a Yemeni. Uh, but then mm-hmm. someone like Eshrag or someone like Amina, whose entire community is Yemeni, you, you, you know, your lifestyle is among Yemenis, your duties are within the Yemeni community. It's a different attachment. And I'm wondering, Amina, if this, you, you know, like Najma mentioned that sometimes she just wants to tune out you know, get out of it. But if you live in a Yemeni household, uh, Amina, and if you live in in, in a Yemeni community and in, in, in a neighborhood full of Yemenis, are you naturally brought into this conflict, or, or do you see Yemenis engaged in in and talk about politics, about what's going on in Yemen, or do you see a, a, a type of detachment on in daily life? Um, I would say the Yemeni community in the West are still deniers of of how bad the war is. 
and they know the war is occurring, but they don't know to what extent. Um, and I, I think also because my family and most of Yemeni families in Liverpool are from the north side of Yemen. And that tells sometimes a different story of what's happening in the south and vice versa. So I also understand that the, there's, there's two issues here. It's where do we get our information from and how do we, you know, who, 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 what, what do we watch? And, and if we're watching BBC News and Western narrative, that's a different narrative about the world because they are constantly talking about Saudi arms, right? Which is still as important because I want to know why my UK government is so invested in selling arms to a country that they see as an enemy. Like Britain is so obsessed with Saudi women not driving. Like the it's, it's very complicated, but to me it's like, you're obsessed about the women, but then you want to invest in them and, and you see them as your friend. And to me, that really confused me. And it was only until Jamal's assassination, Yemen really became known but it was through the arms sale. And to be honest, I'm going to be... Jamal Khashoggi. Yeah. yeah. Um, I became sucked into the narrative of the, the anti-Saudi. And I'm not saying that I'm, I, I have I changed my uh, opinion completely. I haven't. But what I have did, it blinded me to see the other side, which is the Houthi war crimes. And it's not that my family or my community denied Houthi war crimes. They just did not understand why a Yemeni person would do this to their own Yemeni people. But they can understand why Saudi Arabia would do it or the West intervene. Like they can, they can control that emotion easier because an outsider, you can shift the blame. But when it's a Yemeni on a Yemeni, they're like, why? They look like us, they speak like us. Why are they doing this to us? Like, well, it's not happening. That's the attitude. And the other thing is tawakkil. And I'm like, Mama, you're living in the UK. What are you going to do to talk, to kind of voice these issues? I mean, for my, for my experience, it's quite different because I am active. I am at the forefront. But one thing that really, really hit me is when I went to Bosnia. Um, so I went to Calais. I've been to Greece, so where a lot of the refugees um, kind of come. And it, it is quite horrific because... Some people don't make it. Um, and obviously some of the stuff that you see is not, it's not a good sighting. And, but I think when I went to Bosnia is, is when I met Yemeni people. And that made, that's when I realised the war is real. The fact that I've, I've been to other refugee camps and until I saw Yemeni people in Bosnia, I said, okay, well, if the fact that Yemeni people have taken this journey, the war is real. And it's not that I denied it, I just didn't know to what extent of what it looked like. And... And you know what? I will never ever forget, never forget that feeling. When you see, when you see your own people, it's a different thing because you hold so much pride and you want to, you don't want to dehumanize them or degrade their stories or take away their pride. So you treat them as men, you know, because they especially because it was young men that I met. So you treat them with that dignity, you know. I can't say to them, what do you want? Do you want some food? Do you want do you want something to wear? Because I felt like I'm at a place of a privilege. How do I deal with that? So in that way, what I did is in that position, I said, you know what? Don't ask them that question. Tell them what they need from us and not what we can provide for them. That's just a different type of questioning because for me, the biggest thing, I realized that 
Yemeni people hold this pride even in, in struggle yeah. and they will never ask for help. Right. For me, that was the hardest part. Like, how can I get young men to talk about that they need right. they need something to wear? How can I do that? And I don't want to take away their pride or their... Their know, dignity, their, their dignity, yeah. right? Their dignity, yeah. So, um, but, um, and obviously in Bosnia, people don't talk about the journey. They They talk about... Yeah, many people have made it to the other side of the world and they're safe, but no one ever talks about that journey. Right. That journey right. is 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 a life and death journey, and people don't know the extent of it. And um, right. um, yeah, I, I just wish the Yemen community in the West really, really understood to the extent. And I think discussions like this, um, especially from Isra, Sahar, uh, Sahar and uh, Najma, to understand the pers- different perspectives from the north, right. the south, the displaced. That makes us realize there's more to this than just Houthi and Saudi. There is people in between that are suffering. Right. Like, and right. this is a man's war. We're constantly seeing men, men, men. I and I know men are suffering, but who is in between? The children and the women had already barriers before the war. So what happens after war? And people don't talk about women adapting their gender roles to a different right. you know women weren't working now they've got enterprises right. selling to Moses and I'm talking about my village in Malah yeah. they are they're thinking about rebuilding Yemen for the future and I think I think women are just not credited for their resilience their strength and and I think if we support women in terms of practicality finance they can really help in bringing peace back to Yemen right no I mean you touched on a couple of really interesting things which is again you know, that journey in, the, in your father's generation, you know, that planned migration, uh, the journey was different. You know, you, you, you struggled, you saved to leave Yemen to Europe or the U.S. And the struggle was different. You know, you, you, know, you had to be with family and, and, or a friend and, and you struggled to get a small little job somewhere in the city and you saved up money and you got your own place and everything. But now the situation with Esra's family or these uh, refugees that you met uh, on European soil, you, you, you know, that we see these images on, on, on TV from Libyans or Africans, Syrians, but now you got to see Yemenis in that situation. And that journey is tough, you know, and, and again, I'll bring up the reason my background, Mexican. I mean, it's the same thing as these, you, you, you know, when you're in, um, when you're watching TV and you're listening about these caravans coming from Honduras, from uh, Guatemala, coming through Mexico to the U.S. border. It's like, it's that kind of experience too. I mean, these experiences now for Yemenis are, are so similar to what, Latinos, Hispanics, you, you, you know, have been living for the last couple of decades, you know, traveling from Guatemala, getting beaten, robbed, you know, women raped, and they have to go on top of a train to, to go through half of Mexico to get to here, and then go through the desert to walk, you know, over the river to, to, to the desert, how many people die in the desert coming into Arizona or Texas, New Mexico, and now you see this kind of, you, you know, reality in somewhere like Bosnia. You, you, you know, in, in Europe, and yet these poor people trying to get out, and it's not so much that they want to get out because of persecution, but they're trying to get out to migrate to in order to send back, you know, money to their family as well, who had no salaries, no, there is no economy 
for 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 their family and all they want is a small little job that allows them to send back some money because they can no longer get a job in Saudi Arabia they can no longer get a job as migrant workers in the gulf you you you, you know and and sahar you, you you know to what amina talked about the women now in yemen you know turning into the breadwinners basically the heads of households whether they're widows you know, you, you know whether it's a grandma taking care of their their orphan children or a widowed mom taking care of their children or just uh, you, you know a woman whose husband is unemployed uh, you know not getting a, a a salary even though he may be in the military somewhere you know but women what do you see in Aden how are women shifting from you you know the let's call it the traditional role, maybe as Amina put it, being a household, being in the household, being the head of household now, to being the breadwinners. You know, how are we seeing women adapting to, to the economic situation in, in Aden, which is in itself, you know, it's a liberated area, but the economy is no better than yeah. in Taiz or Sanaa. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like for um, a couple of, the, of years ago, I did um, a small research on women uh, or gender in general uh, under the conflict. Uh, I have met some people who fled the, uh, their areas, like IDPs from Hodeida, IDP women from Hodeida, from uh, Ma'rib, from Adala, from these, uh, from the uh, confrontations areas, if I could say. Uh, unfortunately, there are some women who are taking negative coping mechanism. They're not all. Um, positive mechanisms. They are, some of them they are provided by some INGOs, uh, livelihood assistance, um, doing some workshops, trainings, so that capacity building, so that they can support their families with. But most of them, they they are not reached. They are, they don't have access to information in order to to be involved in such programs. And you know the need is more than the um, than what the INGOs can afford. Some of them they're in in uh, they have certain criteria, and of course, when you have criteria, then you have excluded some other people. And under the situation, the current situation, all of the women are in need, despite the levels. But all of them are in need. Um, as you just mentioned, um, many men. Uh, lost their lives in this uh, um, war that is happening because most of the men, either in the south or in the, in general in Yemen, they joined the military um, uh, groups and forces and e either the regular ones or even the non-regular uh, groups in order to get groups. money for, for their families. Yes, yeah. So um, uh, when they return, either they return um, with disabilities or they don't or as dead bodies. That's so exactly that, 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 yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, all these injured soldiers or all these uh, farmers that are, you know, injured from mines, etc., and become incapacitated, mm -hmm. they can no longer mm -hmm. earn wages for their family. And now yeah, yeah. the burden, as you said, the welfare, you know, the welfare system, the safety net, the social welfare fund, you know, the the monthly stipends from from the UN agencies, they're no longer there, or they they can no longer, you know, sustain the demand that that there that yeah. there is. The issue, yeah, the issue for women and men in general, what is happening now within the INGO, this assist the assistance uh, arena is uh this is for fernando to everyone najma amina and isra um they don't do 100 verification 
they only if if they give for example assistance for uh, an area within the uh, the health facility they don't do full full verification they just give away uh, the assistance just to check the point that exactly. they did the assistance they gave away That's a thousand what, food baskets yeah. but without accountability yeah, yeah. on who they gave it to and 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 if maybe they gave the same family two baskets or three baskets yeah. and then other families they never yeah 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 and this is make this makes poor people more poor and rich people more rich and i know there there is a system called the albasma the fingerprint is i think uh, giving um right. small amount of money by unicef right uh, by um i don't want to mention uh, ngos but um Inter- relief international is doing it by the exchange um, uh, companies here they go by monthly to the al kuremi exchange company to get their uh, their money but you know people go with their fortuners with their prados receiving this slight money while other people are dying out of nothing they don't have anything right and 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 as you say the situation is so chaotic you know ngos yeah. in the un have not been able to manage uh proper management procedures you you, you know delivery and everything is focused on the obstruction by Houthis in the north that they're obstructing delivery of aid but no one is paying attention to these little issues at the local level where you know yes there's 100 million dollars for food aid but then how much of that food aid is being taken by uh duplicate uh beneficiaries instead mm-hmm. of a wider uh you you, you know group of of, of people now it's not only even about food they need multi-sectoral assistance they need shelter they need protection they need food they need even livelihood a skill to work to re- to to build their resilience when they're especially I'm, i'm talking especially about idps usually the programs support idps and the host community but it's not enough because of r- corruption it's not enough we're right. only right. looking for success stories but how many success stories are we looking at if if we spend money only blindly before the the, the financial year ends yeah. that's it yeah no and this is one thing uh, i mean uh, najma you've worked with ngos uh, ingos and and un agencies in yemen and and maybe you can give us a, a little bit of insight for 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 what sahar has just mentioned but this is one of those things right sahar that you know people like you said i mean uh, people that just focus on on western media or on social media accounts certain social media accounts and they don't widen their, the the spectrum of, of, of the sources uh, they they see this myopic view uh, on on everything yemen whether it's one-sided partisan or you you know through the un and you see these social media campaigns and they're focusing on the success stories like you mentioned sahar you know and all oh, we fed these many people in this area and all oh, you know these people but you you know they 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 counter this with the tweets about you know this is the largest famine in the world this is the largest human made famine in the world there are 10 million out of 30 near 30 million people that are food insecure uh, i mean near famine etc but then we hear that donors are not meeting their pledges you, you you know where the un asks for 4 billion and they only get 1 and a half billion and then this takes a long time to deliver etc so i mean najma how do you how do you how do you see from outside when you do 
uh, log in to to Yemeni issues. How do you how do you see some, someone that's worked inside and in Yemen? How do you see so far the how would you rate so far the the performance by uh, humanitarian agencies, uh, whether the UN or INGOs, when it comes to the humanitarian response in Yemen? Um, I wish there was more, uh, but even when there was no war, when I was there, I um, I had mentioned again before uh, when I was working there, I was basically translating what was going on. I would get information from our field um, engineers, our director, and I would basically, you know, translate. And I also worked in finance, so I did those two things. I never questioned, you know where the money was going because at that time I wasn't in a position to question it. I wanted my salary. I didn't want to get fired. But I do know that a lot of the times that money doesn't go to the right the rightful people. Um, a lot of times I I'm not gonna mention names but I know um, that sometimes they would send money and it would go to, let's say, my boss or my supervisor. He had full control of what to do, you know, to do with the money. Um, that money would literally be split into three parts. One part would go to the governor, uh, governor that was there. That was his money to chew cod or do whatever with it. Um, the other half would go to my boss. The other tiny bit would actually go to a so-called project, let's say build a school or build a field, um, get aid to buy you know, supplies for hospitals. And we would take pictures and, be, and say, hey, this is the success story, or here's a before and after picture. Our donors were more focused on the before and after picture exactly. than, than what actually had happened. The ribbon cutting, the ribbon cutting ceremonies are really what sell to the donors, right? The, whether it's right. a small donor foundation in the West or a big donor mm -hmm. foundation in, in, in the region, right? That ribbon cutting, you know, this before, you know, this used to be an empty piece of land. And now here we are, you know, with me media and everything, cutting the ribbon. And, and, and that's what matters uh, most, right? Mm -hmm. And also, I've always wondered that they always wanted us to like, okay, take, you know, get supplies for hospitals. That's a good thing. You know, we need it. But I never understood why we were spending money building, let's say, building fields like soccer fields. Like the people are hungry, like they don't have anything to eat, but you want us to build soccer fields. Like that's not their priority. I understand like as a Western, that's a big deal, but you're ignoring the issue. Like as if you as if you did not need to be a well nourished individual, have protein and everything in order to play sports. You, 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 you. <laughs> but the the justification was, you know, I'm not blaming our donors, but the justification always came from locally, like from local yeah. leaders. They would yeah. say, Okay, we we need to make sure we keep the youth busy right. so they don't become Al-Qaeda members as if as if they they can't control Al-Qaeda. I know right. personally, personally they can. <laughs> right, 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 right. No, in this thing, in, in, in Amina, CSO is a civil society organization, so it's different than an NGO, yeah, the, the way we classify them. You know, a non-governmental organization would be a nationally active or international, whereas a CSO is mm -hmm. just a small civil society organization, a local thing. 
can I ask a question? Sorry. Yeah. So when NGOs work with Yemen, do they do they uh, work with community led initiatives to have? Because right. then the community would know who needs what. Right. Yeah. But I mean, it's all the business, right? And I'll, 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 uh, Najman, I can get into this. And, uh, and again, Sahar, because she's lived it. But yes, the CSO would be the local partner for a big NGO, a transnational. But Najma, you know, this thing about the soccer fields, it, it, you know, a lot of people that are against Qat, you know, a lot of the people that, that have campaigns against Qat, they say, look, this is the way we keep kids from Qat. You know, if we make a soccer field at three o'clock, they would be engaged in soccer in order, and, and, and not having to go look for Qat and go join a, a Qat you. And then this other thing, you know, AQ also builds soccer fields themselves. I mean, we saw that in 2015, you, you know, when they were in Mukalla, if, if you looked at anything that AQ was publishing, it was always about these poetry uh, competitions or these football things uh, as, as well. So to think that, you know, building a soccer field is part of a counterterrorism agenda, <laughs> it, it's just ridiculous. I, I would give it more credit if you said, you know, this is part of the anti cut uh agenda but to call it part of your counterterrorism budget i mean it's just ridiculous it is um um people in yemen need food they need basic things they don't need entertainment they have enough land to um play soccer in um you don't need to waste that money on something that's irrelevant right um jobs deliver jobs uh, focusing on the economy delivers other activities you, you you know and you allow the individual to dictate his or her activities you you, you know if you give if you give somebody a football field you're you're saying here come and play football but if you're giving them a job and a monthly salary then you let that individual decide what he or she wants to spend that money on to decide what entertainment he or she wants to engage you know um and, and it's a different approach and uh, i i uh, i i was writing a few articles back in november about this issue of meeting basic needs and not focusing on the macro uh, environment, but Sahar to to Amina's question, you know that relationship between you know NGOs, international organizations, and local organizations. You know the local organization may start with this idealism and want to solve a problem or everything, but then once they meet that reality of asking money for donors, of interacting with donors, everything changes, doesn't it? Everything turns upside down. Yeah, yeah. Actually, NGOs go along with the priorities and agendas of donors most of the time. Yeah, and, um, they don't have like uh, proposals need based. Usually, it's it's donor uh, needs based. Even uh, we do need assessments, rapid need assessments, and multi-sectoral need assessments, but uh, not the real needs most of the time. Uh, there are, to be honest, there are some donors who are really um, concise and particular about everything they're doing. You know, some of the donors, when we send success stories with photos, they want the dimensions of the photos, the locations by GPS, in order to check whether we really in, uh, intervened in that area or not. 
<laughs> يعني they don't have any accountability right. towards the Yemeni right. people who are working on ground. <laughs> But uh, usually, most of the time, right. NGOs, when they do their job, they need a third party to check on them. And most of the third party evaluation, monitoring and evaluation companies, actually, there are a few of them in Yemen. They're not even more than four, as I believe. Um, they send teams, for example, from Sana'a to go to Khamfar villages. Khamfar is uh, an area in Abyan, a district in Abyan. They don't have anything to do with it. They don't know it. They they would come. They know they don't know even the culture. They would write about a big report about the activities, but they don't know about the real context. Right. Oh, and I discussed. Yeah, and I've discussed that, that whole issue with your with your husband, with Allah, or with, with his jobs and and everything that we see posted everywhere. You know, um, one 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 quick question to to Eshrak. You, you, you know, we we discussed. I asked you about that support from the government, which doesn't exist. You you, you know, in, in Malaysia where you are, um, but people like you <clears throat> living. Uh, being displaced, living a, a completely different societies. Do you see any support to you as a Yemeni immigrant from civil society? Whether do you see Yemenis organizing themselves in Malaysia in order to support displaced Yemenis or Malaysian civil society reaching out to the Yemeni community? Uh, there, do do we see any of that at the moment where you are? Well, the short answer is no. <laughs> But uh, actually, there is there is a lot of lot of problem concerns uh, concerned to Yemenis themselves. Actually, for example, we have like the the, the student you know community, uh, and then uh, they have like the student the student. Um, unity that you know should be like active to ask for students uh, rights and uh, supposed to talk to the government and tell them about uh, to give uh, the students their salaries and follow up with that all but uh, like uh, I, i i can't see like there is like pure free work until now uh, i mean if they really work uh, well They, they 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 wouldn't have like depend on the government support only i mean why why don't they uh, organize themselves and they can they can ask for uh, many many agencies help uh, um also like the the yemeni refugees or the yemeni immigrants they're not like um let's say malaysia doesn't have this uh, law to accept yemenis as migrants or any other nationality They they don't give the Malaysian support uh, passport unless unless maybe residency. Maybe yeah, no no residency, no the passport, nothing at all. You need we they are just now cooperating with Yemen because of the uh, efforts of our ambassador only. So okay. uh, I I I think if they change the ambassador, the Yemeni uh, situation will be you know worse. But but still, you know, for example, the uh, the, the Syrian refugees uh, are in better circumstances than Yemeni. Um, I'm just like wondering. I mean, uh, the media, the, the UN media, is much bigger actually than their actual 
projects on field. We didn't see anything. They they promote Yemen as the biggest uh, crisis in the, in the world, but nothing at all helped them. Right. Like, like for, for example, if me if, if I want to be a refugee here, uh, I, I I will not like they will not give me the the uh, the UN card unless maybe one or two or three years. Some people right. didn't get it until for now. UNHCR, and I think that was the same that that was the same thing in in. Uh, in yeah. Ethiopia as well, because I dealt with some, when I was working for the UN panel, I met some Yemenis in Ethiopia. And, and that was the other, you know, issue from dealing with UN agencies there, you know, and we can see this huge vacuum. I mean, Najma, we we see this huge vacuum and and, and maybe perhaps because we live in the US, maybe we, we don't, um, we don't see it uh, as much in this country, in the U.S., but in other countries, whether it's in the region of the Middle East or in in, in Western Europe, we do see this vacuum, don't we? Uh, and, and Amina, when, when you talk about you know people, you know, checking out or or or, or not following, being in denial, uh, basically uh, of the situation, uh, it leaves this huge vacuum where you know the government is not meeting its government responsibilities toward Yemenis at home or abroad, where civil society, whether it's international or local, is are not meeting that uh, need, and the Yemeni community at the local level is not able to or is just checked out of, of reality and not meeting that that need. How do you see it here in, in, in the US, Najma, especially in the DC area and, and, and maybe in New York? Um, I do have a couple of friends who live in DC and I do see what they're, you know, trying to do for Yemen. And a lot of times it's not like, to be frank, it's not what Yemenis need right now um, in Yemen. Um, I know that some of them are very feminist. They want to resolve women issues, women rights. Um, but that's just one example. And in order for women you know, to have rights, women, uh, men also need to have rights. Um, no one in Yemen has rights right now. We need a political solution first. And once the country is stabilized, then we can talk about women issues because you can't fix that issue without fixing the political dilemma that we're in right now. Um, I mean, in a nutshell, that's what I think should happen. We need to focus on what political solution is best for Yemen, even if it goes against our wishes. We need to um, really, really like put our bias aside and see what's good for Yemen in the long term. Right. We're 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 doing a. Uh, I'm going to do another episode, and 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 on March third, we we discussed the, this whole issue and what the path for peace um should be and 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 we'll keep on sharing that episode uh that that were that we recorded on march 3rd but to to this point and 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 amina you know something that that Eshrek brought up you, you you know this idea of the status of refugee right and the acceptance of that and um the fact that and i see this in in, in syria as well 
that status or that attention is also political, politically based, because as Eshrek mentioned, you know, Syria is a political priority for a country like Malaysia. So therefore, Syrian refugees are given a priority, whereas Yemen may not be a political priority. Therefore, Yemeni nationals are not a priority for a country like that. Right. And then we get into Egypt and Djibouti and Amman. Uh, with their politics within with the region, with the coalition, for example, um, and how that affects Yemenis living in those in, in, in those countries and, and, and how they, they, they receive or they don't receive any benefits. But what do you see in the UK? Um, yeah, so um, we saw over the last two years um, a lot of Yemeni people come from Europe to Britain. Um, and... Um, a few months ago, just because in the pandemic, I don't know what month we're in. Um, a few months ago, um, we saw that because of Brexit coming into place and Pretty Patel, um, who we don't like very much, um, she was pushing this agenda of, you know, of this anti-immigration policy. And so a lot of refugee Yemenis were being deported and yeah, so, and I'm laughing because Nejma's put in the chat that she likes my wing. So, <laughs> Nejma, let's talk about something serious. But um, so my point is, we saw a lot of Yemeni refugees being deported um in the past few months, and and I just want to say, I think as Western activists living in the West, not to Nejma, but to me myself as a reminder. Sometimes we forget what we can say. Yemeni people who are living in Yemen can't. So we always have to be always careful of our vision of what the future Yemen looks like. Because what I can do, I won't get censored for it or killed for it. What another Yemeni writer might do. So sometimes when we push for this, like, you know, we need this, we need new policies. We need to work with Yemeni people living in the ground because we need to work at their pace and at their movement, because my movement, oh my God, like my activism, I would want to do so much and write so much because I can, I hold that freedom and I know that privilege that I, but I sometimes feel like, you know, I've worked with so many artists in Yemen and the amount of times where we're working on the project halfway, they're like, I can't do it. I can't do it because of the theme that I'm going to get into trouble, my family. And I'm like, that I hold the privilege and I know I can so sometimes we and this is one thing is uh, just a question to open up um to the uh to everyone here what do you think uh, what can we do as Yemeni activists living in the west um also as women as well what can we do to amplify or just to support your work and what you're doing um it's not about what we can give to you it's more about what you can give to us so that we can support you um, so can I open that question? Is that okay? Yeah, 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 absolutely. Maybe to Sahaj and then Isra, like. Yeah, um, I think, um, Amina, what we can, we can do together is um, share the, the real stories from the ground, especially about women, especially about the, um, the, the, the internal migration, if I could say, the displacement. Nowadays, the crises are doubled. In the past, it was only ties, which was the, the conflict was burning there. 
We have also uh, Hudayda. We have now the newest one is Ma'rib. So going through those real stories, humanitarian stories, uh, maybe would uh, would make people know more about Yemen, about the how Yemeni women are suffering. Uh, regardless of of the of the cliche of the INGO, which is helping them, usually NGOs are just having pictures of before and after, of an uh, uh, a wash station, if I if I could say, or a happy kid with a food basket. But the real people are not shown within the photos. So this is what we can contribute to, if if possible, sharing stories from the ground. Yeah, I, I agree. Actually, I think uh, two days ago, I was listening to Isra. She's the daughter of uh, uh, my tier, Tufaha. She was she was killed by Houthis uh, bullets in, in Taiz. And uh, she's actually holding lots of activities there in, in Taiz. And uh, there's, her stories are really, really, really heartbreaking. And, and she's like, they are like people there are really like struggling and like uh facing the houthis with their with their with their bodies and and their own uh you know um very very little equipment and uh nobody's really nobody really know know about them and um the thing is like uh we have like a lot of active media there in in Yemen but they are all in arabic nobody speaks out in English, this is a, a, a big problem, actually. Uh, I, I, I was trying to speak to other people to speak in English and, you know, uh, find, you know, programs like this one and to talk about, but like, <laughs> they still they still have this. I mean, they have a lot to, to say in the, in the media, but in Arabic, no, but and also like, in, in, like it's, it's, it's like they're, they're targeting the, the Yemeni, the Yemenis. The Yemenis don't have the solution. It's it, it's not it's not by their hands. It's not in their hands. They need to talk like a lot louder. They they need not to have lots of hope in this government. I mean, right. I think one one of the things that that I brought up and is something that you Esrak and and, and Sahar just mentioned is that you know a lot of the Yemeni community, let's say New York, for example, that the, the one that I'm most familiar with, are so focused on raising money to send humanitarian assistance, right? To, 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 to send a few baskets, to send some medical equipment, et cetera. But as you just pointed out, and as Amina has pointed out from the beginning, is that there is no partnership between the diaspora and the Yemenis there to bring out that voice, right? To bring out the daily stories that we're reading and 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 the only source as Samina brought it up in, in, the, in the beginning is that western media or the un social media you know that bring out their facade their 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 images of what they're doing and they want the global community to see yemen through these particular images but there is no effort that i've seen and i i like to think that i'm you know i can you know reach out to a wide 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 spectrum um, that there should be this partnership between Yemenis and the diaspora, the privileged ones, like Amina has mentioned it, with money, with, 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 with safety, with security, 
that reach out to these artists or these activists, these individuals in Yemen, wherever they may be, without uh, beyond partisanship, beyond regional uh, affiliation, and bring out their stories, you, you know, and put them out in the global sphere and in the, in, in the public sphere. One of my main things, and you, you, you know, I, I, because of this the, this podcast, you, you know, I've received uh, you know a tremendous. Uh, uh, praises from 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 very close friends of mine and and great constructive criticism and but and one of the things that they that they talk about is you know Fernando you know the episodes are two hours long and and and, and I said well you don't have to listen to two hours of the podcast in a row you can listen to fifteen minutes here fifteen minutes there while you're in the car while you're you know resting while you're having coffee whatever but one of the main issues I mean uh, not you know, that that we live in, in outside in the West is is attention span. You know, we know that the average adult has the attention span of an 11-year-old, and we know that adults cannot stand, you know, watching something or listening to someone more than five or 10 minutes at a time. And this is why think tanks and, and, and institutes and, and agencies put out these sound bite episodes of like 10 minutes, 15 minutes, no more than 30 minutes, you know, hurry up and say what you want to say in three minutes because our audience, you, you, you know, we need to keep their attention. And one of the things that I'm trying to do with this podcast is there, it, this is an informal conversation. There is no time limit. There is no scripted questions here. And I want Yemenis I want I want people to hear Yemeni voices. I and, and I don't want to interrupt anyone. And I do like this interaction. For example, when I do want our guests to to interact and ask each other questions, not have me, you know, the non-Yemeni ask these questions. And I think that that's what that that's what could give you know these uh, individuals, the non-Yemeni audiences, uh, a greater insight. You know, because you guys on your own, you ladies, just brought up more than a handful of issues that should be dealt with that are missed by people like me, that are missed by NGO workers that are Westerners or, you know, from Africa or from India, you know, being country directors or, or project directors. And, um, and again, it's that need for Yemeni voices. And, and I wonder who can fill that gap. I mean, who, who can fill that gap? People like you, you're a poet, you're, you're an activist and, and you're bringing out certain projects. But who else can meet that need? Uh, does it have to be really organized within some sort of institution? Or do you think more individuals should take the lead and do their own thing? Um, I mean, I can come up with a few, but I think one thing that we can ask ourselves is what do we have available? Because activists on the foreground, they're doing this on their backs as well as other commitments and their own work. So I think it's about making things accessible. And one thing that we share now is a digital platform. I wouldn't be able to do what I'm doing today if we didn't really have the pandemic. Not that it wasn't available, but we just didn't think about it, you know? So now that we have this available, we have these webinars, we have these podcasts, share them, share them around to places and audiences that are not educated. And I think to the girls here, I think maybe we can continue this conversation after, look at what each other's platform, what we have available and how we can get involved even more um, together. Um, I also think about maybe supporting women, maybe there's an opportunity, maybe joining a woman's organization in the West or in the UK and joining forces with a Yemeni organization based in Yemen. That way we build a strong partnership, but we, we can raise 
uh, awareness, money, funding, but also conversation. Because even if the war ends today, we are we will have to contribute to to building Yemen for the future. And the other thing is maybe translating Yemeni news outlets. We can look at finding maybe translators or young people that are passionate about telling Yemeni stories that know Arabic and English and encouraging them to use that platform. Um, I mean, from my side, I want to really connect Yemeni refugees with the Yemeni settled community in Britain and build that community as in, you know, this is happening and, and that way, maybe a long term, just also to, to resettle refugees in a possible way, because um, which is already happening. And I just want to say there's some Yemeni people across the globe that are doing amazing stuff. And I think it's also recognising and crediting, credit, giving credit to that work because sometimes we forget. And I know there's so much bad, but there's also so much, so much good. Um, and one and finally, that I'm really passionate about is art. Sometimes politics, people don't want to talk about it. I think collaborating in an art piece or a project, like a podcast like this, is, it is a form of expression, but we can even go even more abstract to bring people into this conversation without thinking about politics, but really it, it draws them into the real essence of the war. So I have so many ideas we can do together. So, but I think the main thing is that we're here and I just want to say thank you to, of course, to yourself for inviting me. And um, I do have to go now, but um, but can we can we maybe collaborate, share contacts through email? Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. You guys, I emailed everyone together. Uh, I'll email everybody. Uh, I'll put together everybody on 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 email. But you know, I'll also when 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 I promote this uh, on on Twitter, I will tag everybody so you have your social media. Uh, contacts together and and be able to interact on your own you, you, you know in your own space and with your own ideas and con continue this conversation elsewhere you know but I really thank you for your time Amina uh, really appreciate it and uh, and you know we we'll hope we 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 can invite you uh, to to a future podcast later on on other yeah. topics and it was so lovely to meet you all like wallah like it's wallah <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Amina. Thank you. Yes, I have you you brought up the, the, the point of Yemen aid. You know, I, I invited Samar Ahmed to join us, but she couldn't today. But that that is one of the, the some of the work that I wanted to highlight in, in, in this and, and and ask her, you know, as a Yemeni American and 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 you, you know, going back and forth. Uh, to Yemen and interacting in this, you know, what she sees working with international organizations, working with the U.S. government, you know, how the FDO, you know, we discussed with uh, Yasmin Al-Qadi, the, the, the foreign terrorist organization listing, how that affected them, how, you know, the, the, the U.N. panel report as well, how it affected or will affect uh, delivery, uh, humanitarian aid delivery, you, you know, in the, in, in the coming weeks and, and months. But ladies, I really appreciate your time. It, it was amazing. I hope our audience can, you know, soak this in and 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 brings them uh, a new perspectives. And I hope that we, my friend Ali Mahmoud, and I can continue doing more uh, episodes with more women. Uh, bring up a, a different perspective and different stories, different experiences uh, for for our audience. And 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 as well, we we wanted to have some sort of impact, you know, we want NGOs, we want the UN, we want governments to listen to, to Yemenis 
their, their real stories and, and have these organizations identify their gaps, identify what they're doing wrong and correct it, you know, and address it and become more efficient and, and, and help more, help uh, more efficiently, not to waste this money that, that is being given uh, for the sake of Yemenis uh, that are suffering, whether it's an IDP not having a home, whether it's somebody, you know, you know the, think of the IDPs in Sana'a, the, the, the people whose house has been bombed, they have to move out of their houses and go become the burden of a family member, a relative, and move into their house or into an IDP camp. That dignity that that, that Amina and I, we, we discussed, you know, how it hurts. Uh, tribal societies, you know, tribal communities that are rooted in a particular space, that are rooted in a particular piece of land, and now they're being uprooted, they're being pushed out of that, how does it affect their dignity, their history, their, you, you, you know, all of this, uh, it's something that we definitely want to get to, we, we, we want to discuss, and, and more people need to talk about this. I mean, Yemenis the, themselves need to talk about this. I wrote a long piece about the impact of the war on tribalism, you know, on the idea of a tribe, on, on the idea of a tribesman, on the dignity of a tribesman, and that connection to a piece of land that now it's been taken over by one party on another and pushes them out. And tribalism in Yemen is about land. It's about history. is about that place where that individual, you know, uh, Bilad is not a nation state. It's not a country. It is an actual piece of land where you were born, where your parents, grandparents were born. And, and what this conflict is doing to that, um, you, you, you know, is just uh, amazing. And, and it's understudied, you, you, you know, as an academic, uh, been studying Yemen for 20 years. Um, that is something that, you, you know, you're, we're not seeing in, in studies or being discussed at, at the academic level. And, and it's going to be a huge issue for the reconstruction phase. Once there is peace, you, you, you know, we discussed with Yasmin Al-Qadi about uh, Jaham tribe in Azur being displaced, you, you, you know, because of the conflict. Now think of the tribes that have been displaced in Surwa itself, in the city of Surwa. Think of the, the tribes that have been displaced in al Jawf last year when the Houthis came in, um, in, in southern Tehama, et cetera. So tons of stuff to discuss, you, you know, two hours are not enough, 24 hours of podcast are not enough, but let's hope that um, people continue the conversation. And, and, and once again, I thank all of you ladies for your time, for, for your ideas. And, and for your perspectives today. If anyone wants a closing word, more than welcome. Well, I'm really happy to uh, to be one from uh, who, who attended to this uh, program and I really appreciate it. And it's, it's a very good initiate um, to deliver the voices of Yemenis. I'm really, really glad to find this one. And I really hope to continue and I'm, I'm ready to support with Izari Ikan, inshallah. Thank you, thank you. Ladies. Um, this has been awesome. Um, it's so good to see all of you. Um, it's something we definitely need to continue doing if we want to have a resolution, um, even if, if it doesn't happen within the next coming months. I think it's a good start. Uh, I think we need to share our stories and you know, let those of us that live in the West be the ones that are going to speak on behalf of the Yemeni people who don't have anyone 
who can basic who can speak for them. Um, it is a good start, um, and yeah, let's keep it up. Thank you. Thank you, Najma. Yeah. Um, yeah. Since I'm the only one on ground. <laughs> So if you need anything from Yemen in terms of information, stories, anything, um, you have uh, you will have my email and uh, we can share anything that you want. So stay well where you are, guys, and hope we meet soon, inshallah, in Yemen, once everything is settled, inshallah. Absolutely. Absolutely. Okay. We're, we're definitely looking forward to the days when we can all travel back safe and uh, to visit friends and i want some fish to have tell Allah, I, I, I want some fish I, I only fish not that huh uh, well i mean <laughs> you, you know i'm in the us i'm uh, i'm not allowed to mention cod but yes i miss my cod sessions yes i met uh, fish at the in Aden at the at the fish market and and, yeah, and yeah. I even miss my my chicken I even miss my faham chicken you know the mm. my tiny little <laughs> chicken but I miss it I miss the taste <laughs> I, I want salta I want faxa and most anything I I definitely want to be with with, with friends and, and 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 continue to learn more and and see how we can help for sure I mean as an outsider there's only limited uh, resources or opportunities but Thank you, ladies, so much. I really appreciate you. Hopefully, you can join us for another one soon, and and we can continue the conversation. And hopefully, you can continue the conversation through your own outlets, um, on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and 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 again, you know, let's 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 push for 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 a recovery. Let's push for reconstruction. Let's push for something other than jobs in the military and security forces. Ladies, yeah, thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Have a good night. Uh, yeah, have a good afternoon, yeah, Najma. Bye. Bye. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Uh, friends, thank you very much for joining us. It, this was a long one. This was a long episode. We hope you enjoyed the conversation again. You know, take your time. This is important. This is an important conversation. This was, these were, you know, interesting ideas and, you know, take, take your time, listen to this every 15 minutes, every 20 minutes, reach out to the ladies, reach out to these awesome Yemenis, uh, Yemeni professionals uh, living everywhere. And um, let's continue the conversation on our, on our next podcast. Uh, keep up with our social media accounts. Keep up with our events. Uh, we hope you enjoy it. Please suggest any ideas that you have through social media, Facebook, Twitter. Uh, keep us posted on what you what you want to listen to, what you want to watch, who you want to listen to, who you want to watch. And um, we'll stay in touch. We'll see you next time. Thank you. <laughs>